The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. Hey, everybody. How you doing tonight? Welcome, 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 welcome. Glad you're here. We're going to have a great conversation. I am here in my lovely Brooklyn apartment. It is Saturday night. There is still a snowstorm outside. Hopefully it's cleared up by tomorrow or Monday. But yes, we are staying indoors here in New York and it's freezing cold, but we are having a great, great, lovely January weekend. So hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. Always a pleasure. We're about to go live. We're just now going live on Rockfin. Wow, this is great. So hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. We are on Facebook, we are on YouTube, and we are on Rockfin. It is awesome. Hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. Plenty of unnamed water beverage. We're going to have a great little conversation tonight. Lately, we've been focusing on current events, but tonight we get to step back and talk about ideology and politics and history and all that fun stuff a little bit later. Um, so that'll be fun. Uh, so the way this works, for those of you who are familiar with it, um, is that I give my opening remarks, after which uh, then uh, we do the roll call, where I call you all out as I see you, names and locations, names and locations. I call you out as I see you, names and locations. And then after that, after that, um, you know, then I answer your super chat questions for the rest of the night. So if there's something you want me to comment on, shoot me a super chat. I would love to talk about it. And we now type the super chats. I don't click my pen, click, 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 click. Instead, I type my super chats. Uh, that's how it works because we're doing this from StreamYard app. Uh, we're on Rockfin. Um, Battle of Seattle, when the anarchists did good work. That is a very, very good question, Chase, and I'm happy to answer it. All right, we'll type it on here. Battle of Seattle, anarchists doing good work. Question mark. Very good question about U.S. political history, some, some 1999 Gen X radical history. If there's anything else you want me to talk about, just shoot me, shoot me a super chat. I'll be writing the super chats down. I'll be typing them, rather, for the second half of the show, um, and that's how it works. So welcome, everybody. So glad to have you here with us. Um, uh, I just, just a couple announcements. I'm going to do, uh, you know, I'm going to do my opening remarks and I, I'm going to start out my opening remarks by, I just want to go over a couple things that have happened that I think are, are worth commenting on. Uh, you know, you know, people love to talk about internet drama. I don't, right. I really don't like to talk about internet drama. I don't. However, however, um, uh, because of the fact that, uh, that, we are on the internet, and because of the fact that a lot of people like to talk about it, and because this is social media, I mean, we're on various streaming platforms right now, because of that, I figured, okay, we will talk a little bit, just a little bit, uh, about internet drama. First item that I wanted to get out of the way about internet drama is that uh, I had a Twitter exchange, a back-and-forth argument with Richard Spencer. Uh, do folks know who Richard Spencer is? Richard Spencer is the, the top white nationalist in the United States. Uh, he's much younger than David Duke, uh, the former, um, you know, Matt, who is worse, Nestor Macno or Pol Pot? All right. 
Uh, and um, he's a white supremacist, white nationalist. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's, he's like David Duke. He's just not as old. And he's a rich kid uh, who's kind of, you know, made a career for himself by being edgy. You listen to him talk, everything he says is like this because he's totally rebelling against his parents by being a neo-Nazi. And he talks like this, yet. It's like he, he can't speak in a normal voice. Um, he cannot speak in a normal voice. He speaks in this, this like crazy edgelord voice. And he goes around getting attention for himself uh, by being, being a racist, by being an open racist and the, an open advocate of white separatism, etc. Right? And he just, I'm Richard Spencer. And I am a racist. I love the white race. Don't you? I mean, I, this is seriously how he talks. Like, it's like comedy. It is, it is like the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Um, you know, I mean, it's like, I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's awful. But anyway, you know, he's recently gotten sued over the, the, sh the sh uh, shout out to Steven Estrada, communist running for city council. All right, we'll write that down. Right. Um, oh, and shout out to you, darling. Uh, shout out to you. Uh, that's great. Everyone say hi to Metches. Uh, she's just one room away. Um, all right, Stephen Estrada. Yes, everyone should everyone should follow Metch's page, the fantastic professional nanny. Um, everyone should follow her page. Um, but uh, that said, that said, so I mean, he's just you know, and he's gotten sued over the Charlottesville stuff. Richard Spencer, he you know, he's had you know court appearances, and his wife, his Russian wife, has left him. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's not having the best time. So out of the blue, out of the blue, uh, Richard Spencer decides that he's going to tweet at me and he's going to tweet at, um, at, at Jackson Hinkle. Uh, why? I don't know. Right. I mean, he's been banned from Twitter, but now he's back on Twitter. He doesn't have that many followers because he was banned. You know, he's gotten a huge amount of publicity, not that many followers. So, you know, Richard Spencer, he's back on Twitter and he decides he's going to tweet at me. And I'm tweeting that any socialist who's worried about it, uh, who, who is worthy of the name, any socialist who's worthy of the name should be trying to stop the danger of war with Russia. He tweets at me that, no, 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 a real socialist would want a great catastrophe uh, to take place so we could rebuild the world. Well, first of all, um, you know, first of all, right, uh, first, first things first, right? First things first. Did I miss a super chat here? Did I miss a super chat? Uh, oh, why does Avaz Battalion get no attention in mainstream U.S. media? All right. Avaz Battalion. Good. Wrote it down. Thank you. Uh, you know, and so he tweets at me. And he tweets at me, uh, you know, that, oh, that we should want World War III. Well, first of all, why would I take Richard Spencer's advice on how to be a socialist, number one? Number two... Like, why, why would anybody want World War III to break out, right? World War III would be an epic disaster. Um, and so I tweeted back at him. I called him a racist fool, a racist fool. And I said he doesn't care about working people who have to go die in wars, white or non-white. That's what I said. Now, generally, when you're calling someone a racist fool, and you're saying that they don't care about working families, be they white or non-white, uh, that is generally not an endorsement of the person. Can we agree on that? Now, is there any disagreement about this? That, that if, if, you know, if someone calls you a racist fool, are they your buddy? Are they your friend? No. 
someone calls you a racist fool and says you do not care about working families, be they white or non-white, are they, uh, are they, are they endorsing you politically? Are they agreeing with you? Uh, obviously not. However, um, it has now been reported all across the hateful, woke Twitter uh, that I had a, quote, cordial conversation with Richard Spencer. Now, this is the memo that's been sent out. All of these, all of these hateful wokesters, all these synthetic leftists now interpreted me calling Richard Spencer a racist fool. Number one, accusing him of not caring about working people. They say that that somehow proves I am on his team. Now, if you want to talk about dishonest people, if you want to talk about liars, you want to talk about people who are dishonest, despicable, lying people. This is what they are. And you have to do something. I'm not talking to the haters right now. I'm not going to convince the haters. I'm talking to you. Yes, you. 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 The person watching this right now. You have to make a decision. Are you going to listen to people that just make up anything? Anything to go after. They will say anything. They. They have no interest in telling the truth. They have, they have a record of getting things wrong, of making things up, of, of saying utterly false things. They claim my dad was a Wall Street billionaire. Um, uh, what else do they claim? They claim that, uh, you know, that, that I, you know, that, that I, I don't know. I've, I've heard so many things, right? Now, you have to make a decision. Are you going to keep giving these people a chance or not? And what you need to do is the next time one of these jokers comes up and says, oh, he had a cordial exchange with Richard Spencer, you need to just block their ass. Just block their ass. Just hit that block button. There's nothing good that can come out of these people's mouths. There's nothing good, right? There's an old expression. It's kind of a crude expression. But people say, you know, that if you throw enough crap at the wall, eventually some of it will stick. And I mean, cops use this, right? Um, I have zero comprehension, you know, yeah, you know, uh, thank you, Joe. Uh, but you know, you know, that, that, you know, this is what prosecutors do, right? And this is how the legal system in the United States works. They don't prosecute crimes. They prosecute people, right? They did this. They've done this to all kinds of people. When the government wants to go after somebody, maybe it's a, it's a communist, an anti-imperialist. They did this to, to Lyndon LaRouche uh, in the 19, early 1990s. They sit there and they get the person. They don't get, you know, they don't prosecute a crime. They get a person. And they say, what can we go after this person? with?" And they sit there and they make up anything. And they say, oh, you know, he walked his dog and he crossed the street wrong. All right, criminal jaywalking. All right, he talked to his friend while he was walking the dog. Conspiracy to commit criminal jaywalking. Oh, you know, he talked to somebody who looked like they could have been from another country. Espionage. And they sit there and they make up, you know, hundreds of charges against the person. Right? And then it goes before the judge, and the judge says, okay, talking to somebody who might be from a foreign country, not espionage, dismissed. Okay, walking your dog is not, you know, criminal, you know, jaywalking, uh, you know, dismissed. Oh, you know, uh, you know, you know, uh, what is it? Talking to somebody about walking your dog is not conspiracy to commit jaywalking, dismissed. And it will be like 99 charges will be dismissed. But there'll be one thing that maybe has some validity to it. Maybe there's some argument that could possibly be made. And that charge doesn't get thrown out and that goes to court. And here's the thing. In real life, if somebody makes up 99 lies, 99 lies, and then one of them might have some truth in it, are you going to believe that person? 
right? If I came up to you and I, I said 99 untrue things, I made up 99 things that were not true, but there was one of them that you were just kind of like, eh, maybe they've got a point there. Would you believe that person? Would you take them seriously? Of course you wouldn't. You'd say this person lied to me 99 times and the one that there might be some validity to what they're saying, I'm sorry, but they lied 99 times. That's how the real world works. That is not how cancel culture works. The way cancel culture works is we just make up, they make up so much crap and they just, I mean, and that's the thing, right? Have I made mistakes before in my life? Yes. Have I, have I done things, you know, or said things really? I don't think, I, I mean, have I, have I done things or said things that I wish I could have done differently or said differently? Yes. But these people are not honest actors. They have lied to you so many times, so many times. They're saying that I had a cordial exchange with Richard Spencer when I called him a racist fool, okay? Um, you know, these people claim my father is a Wall Street billionaire, right? Uh, you know, I don't know many Wall Street banks that are headquartered in tiny little towns in Ohio. Uh, you know, I mean, this is these people are lying scum. And you have to make a decision. Am I going to give them a chance, right? They've come at us with 99 lies. Am I going to give them a chance with every new lie? Or am I just going to go, yeah, you clearly are just out to get Caleb. You're clearly just lying con artists and, and just, just block their ass and block them out, right? Seriously. I mean, I know people who have, I mean, you know, with all the drama with the Communist Party, I've talked to many people and they said, I really wanted to believe you're a fascist. That was the best. I had this conversation with this young guy. Uh, you know, uh, teacher, and, and I mean, I don't want to say too much more. I'm going I'm to reveal his identity, but he was in the Communist Party. Talk to him. Talk to him on the phone. You know, uh, and and you know, um, hello everyone. Consider donating to CPI or John Brown Volunteers by asking a super chat question. Broke? Then like, share, and comment. Thank you, Red Vertarian. I appreciate that. Talk to him. He said, Caleb, I really wanted to believe that you were a fascist because that's what we were being told, right? The leaders were telling us that you were a fascist, that you were a white supremacist. But, you know, I noticed that, that you're married to a non-white woman. And I noticed that you've been protesting police brutality for decades, long before it was trendy and cool, long before any of these left book losers were protesting police brutality. I noticed that you actually video recorded an act of police brutality and your, your evidence, your video evidence was used in court to acquit somebody after the police beat them up and then tried to charge them for assault. I've noticed that you've risked your life standing with people against war and trying to bring aid to the people of Yemen. I've noticed that, uh, that you stand up for Muslims and that you defend black nationalists like Minister Louis Farrakhan. I just can't believe, I just can't believe it. I just can't believe it. And they said, I tried. They said, I really tried to believe that you were the grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, that you are, you know, you're part of a satanic conspiracy against Kamala Harris directed by Alexander Dugan. And, and, and you know, I tried to believe it, but I just, I just can't. And I've heard that from many people that, that what these people say is so ridiculous ridiculous. Now, I mean, look, they, they, they think me calling someone a racist fool means I endorse them. I mean, that's how despicable these people are. And there's so many examples of this, so many examples, right? You all need to, you need to immediately, if you see this crap being spewed by anybody, right? By anybody, if you see this garbage being promoted by anybody, you need to block them. And then if you see anyone who's kind of on the fence, you need to go to them and show them, show them what bullshit it really is. You need to just lay it out for them. Be like, no, no tolerance for this bullshit. You know, you, you disagree with Caleb about China, fine. You disagree with Caleb about Russia, 
fine. You disagree with Caleb about North Korea, fine, right? Um, and Peter's Peter Coffin. Um, and you know, um, but but you need to you need to stand your ground on this and say no. You need to say no, and if you're and you need to say to people if you're going to engage in this, you're blocked. Thank you, Peter Coffin. Peter Coffin is amazing, by the way, and they've gone after him just as viciously as they've gone after me. His new book on cancel culture, I've got it right here, by the way. I've read a, a, some of it on the train on the way to work. Check out his new book on cancel culture. Peter Coffin is a great, great person, a great book about this kind of you know, personal character assassination. I mean, this is really good stuff. You should get a copy of it if you can. Uh, you know, really, really good stuff. Um, you know, we're going to have it on the literature table at Center for Political Innovation events, I think, you know, because this is a Marxist analysis. Peter Coffin is a Marxist. Uh, and and we're going to we're going to have this book available because it's worth reading. You really ought to. I didn't know about what the Pope said and a lot of the in interesting stuff in here I wasn't aware of. So you should really get your hands on this book. But Peter Coffin is great. And and you we have got to just take a stand against this kind of stupidity because that's what this is. That's what this is. This is stupidity. This is stupidity, right? And, uh, you know, if they can do it to me, they can do it to anybody, right? And part of the reason they do it is they want to make people afraid. Bitcoin anti-Marxist. They want to make people afraid, right? They want to make people afraid to say anything. It's not about changing people's minds. It's about intimidation. They want to bully and intimidate people out of standing up for the truth, right? They want to make people, when it's time to go to war with Russia, they want to make sure no one gets up and says, ah, oh, maybe World War III is not a good idea, you know? You know, they want to make you afraid to say that. Not because you would think it's wrong, but because you're afraid of, you know, a, a thousands of people getting on social media and, and exposing you as a Russian agent and collaborator. This is what this is about. This is totalitarian mind control, right? You know, they don't, they don't throw you in a prison camp in the United States at this point. They may get to that at some point, but... They don't throw you in a prison camp. Uh, you know, they don't, uh, you know, they don't round you up and torture you. They just destroy your life on social media. If you disagree with the government, if you disagree with the ruling class, if you get up and say, no, we're not going to buy your lies. We're not going to buy your wars. We're not going to buy your propaganda. We're not going to buy your, your fake socialism. We are going to challenge your lies. We are going to fight for the truth. Uh, they do that. They try to lie about you and they use their ability to just spread, you know, spread propaganda all over the internet to destroy you, right? It is their totalitarian mechanism for mind control um, and, and, and intimidation is really what it is. And it's cultivating people to be weaker, right? It's trying to cultivate a generation of younger people to be psychologically weak. And I've talked about over-socialization. We can talk about that later in the stream if you want. Um, I don't want to make this the whole focus. I mean, we just got going here got a whole nother thing to talk about. But um, I just wanted to get that out of the way because I, I mean, this is a great example, a great example of how dishonest these people are. So I, I can't let it go. I, I got to show it to you. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that, uh, you know, this guy, Humanist Report, right? There's this guy who calls himself Humanist Report. He's another one of these. Again, we're still on the internet drama. Again, I don't like to talk about internet drama, but while we're there, there's some, there's some guy and he's got like, a, what is his name? He's got like an Italian last name. He's like an Italian American dude. And he, he goes by humanist report. Uh, uh, is Hollywood out of touch. Okay. We'll write that down. Right. Uh, humanist report. So he did a video mainly attacking Jackson Hinkle. Uh, and in that video, um, he's attacking Jackson Hinkle. Uh, Jackson Hinkle is, you know, 
great friend of mine. I'm going to be on with him tomorrow. It looks like I'll be on his stream. And, you know, he's going to be speaking at our great event that's upcoming in, in Austin, Texas. We're having a great event March 12th. If you can make it, that'll be great. Um, so, you know, you know, he's attacking Jackson Hinkle. And he's watching this, this video of Jackson Hinkle. And he's attacking Jackson Hinkle. And he says to Jackson Hinkle, you know, Jackson Hinkle um, says, um, you know, that he's a Marxist-Leninist, anti-imperialist American patriot. And this guy sits there. He's a, he's a liberal, right? And he's like, what? You can't be an American patriot and be a communist. You can't, you can't be, you know, you can't be anti-imperialist and, and be an American patriot. You can't do that. I mean, it's like, I'm watching this. I'm watching this. Um, I'm watching this. And I'm just like, holy crap. This guy is supposed to be such a liberal or whatever. It's never occurred to him that like dumb commentators on Fox News who sit there and go, commies are anti-American. They need to move to another country. You know, it's never occurred to him. Never occurred to him that they might be wrong. It's never occurred to him that those of us who advocate a system where the banks, factories, and industries are organized to serve the people might be doing so because we want to make life better in the United States of America. It's never occurred to him that all these wars that are being waged, um, you know, all these wars that are being fought for the profits of the rich are not good. And that maybe it's not good for America to have young people from young men from Idaho and Pennsylvania and young women as well, uh, you know, getting shot, you know, for corporate profits and having low income people get killed so that Wall Street can maintain its monopoly. Take it from an old ML, I'm a red diaper baby. Dad was in CPUSA in the 1940s. Granddad was IWW, Gene Skeb guys. American Marxists were patriots until the new left. Thank you, Chris Marlock. Thank you. Um, I'll write that down. I'll come back to that. Patriots until the new, until the new left. Uh, so, you know, I mean, the fact that this humanist report guy is so politically shallow uh, that he, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't comprehend that like socialism would make a better life for the United States. I mean, that is utterly shocking to me. Right. And, uh, you know, so then he, and then he's ranting against Jackson Hinkle and then somehow he gets to me, right? I, why, how I fit into the, I mean, he brings me into it. I guess somebody in his chat mentions me and then he's like, oh yeah, well, Caleb is an idiot or smooth brain or something like that. And he says, yeah, we had an exchange on Twitter uh, that proves that Caleb's an idiot. Well, I've got that exchange on Twitter right here, folks. I've got our exchange on Twitter and you'll notice, uh, I think our exchange on Twitter makes me look pretty darn good. Because all that happened was that I said I was willing to work with people who were against gay marriage or abortion, despite disagreeing with them. I said, you know, people that are against gay marriage or abortion, I might strongly disagree with you, but you're still my comrade. That is all I said. And and a bunch of people started attacking me. And I said, no, like, I, I stand by this. I mean, if, if this is the hill that I want to die on, fine. You know, I've worked with Muslims who are against abortion and gay marriage. I've worked with Roman Catholics who are against abortion and gay marriage. I've worked with black nationalists who are against abortion and gay marriage. I am for abortion being legal. I am for gay marriage being legal, but I know some people that are socially conservative. There are Catholics who've been marching against the death penalty for years. You know, some of the most important Catholic, uh, you know, you know, civil, civil rights and anti-death penalty organizers, but it's, you know, Father Roy Bourgeois. Uh, you know, you can talk, talk about Father Grappi, who led, you know, civil rights protests in, in Minneapolis. Uh, you can talk about, you know, go see the movie Dead Man Walking. I believe it's about a Catholic anti-death penalty act. And some of the most progressive activists are Catholics that are against abortion, against, against gay marriage. Well, I don't agree with them, but they're still my comrades. And so are 
Shia Muslims, the, the Muslims of, of the Middle East that are fighting against imperialism, uh, you know, the people of Yemen, you know, that, that are resisting Saudi aggression, uh, you know, black na- minister Farrakhan, black nationalists, many black Muslims, black revolutionaries. You know, I mean, many, many Puerto Ricans, uh, you know, are against abortion, many, many Latino Roman. Ca- I mean, the, there are many people in this country who are very progressive, good anti-imperialist folks who have, you know, some socially conservative positions. Um, and so, you know, this, you know, there was this mob of people on Twitter just piling on to me. How dare you say that? Oh, you, and people are sending me crazy messages. You want to work with people who want to murder me. And I'm thinking, OK, now I, I, I can understand that, you know, as a, as a gay person, you might be, you know, you might be in favor. Uh, you might be very strongly in favor of gay marriage. But I, I don't think that people who oppose gay marriage want to kill you. Right. And they're just sending me all this crazy hate. And of course, you know, you know, this uh, this humanist report, dude, you know, he's not the kind of person who like thinks of things himself. Right. That would require him to like take a risk and be heroic and be creative. And that's not the kind of person he is. But he sees that I'm being dogpiled on. So just like, you know, just like any weak, pathetic person, uh, he jumps into the mob and attacks me. And so I thought, okay, this is this guy's got a big following, got a big account. I'll tweet back at him. You know, and I said, oh, OK, you want to debate me? I'll debate you anytime. And he, he declined to debate. Oh, no, he couldn't debate me. But I was free to call into his show, he said, and tell anyone why he as a gay person should work with people who oppose his right to marry. And I said, I never said what you should do, Mike. I said that I'm willing to work with people who have socially conservative views despite disagreeing with them. That's all I said. And, you know, he had no response to this. And the tweet, I just retweeted the thread. And he says that somehow our exchange made me look dumb. Read the tweets. Read the tweets. My replies to him got more likes than his comments. He's this big, famous humanist report, Democratic Party shill. People liked my replies to him. I'm going to post it in the chat right now. If you're on the YouTube, it'll probably go into the chat. Posting it right now. Right right now. This is this is me reposting our exchange. Go and read it. Go and read. Read our exchange. Right. Uh, And this this will show you. I looked great and he looked like an idiot. So, you know, my offer to debate, you know, anti-humanist report, Mike, Mike, whatever his name is, uh, you know, you know, it stands. I mean, again, people love when you talk about Internet drama. I personally don't like talking about Internet drama, but I, I'm, you know, and this really kind of ties into what we want to talk about. And you can thank Char Char Darling for what I'm going to talk about tonight in the chat. Um, the main focus of my opening remarks tonight is going to be on on a certain topic that was brought to my attention, brought to my attention by Char Char Darling. So everyone applaud for Char Char Darling. Uh, you know, go follow Char Char Darling on Twitter. Uh, she deserves more Twitter followers. Char Char Darling is a John Brown volunteer. Uh, she's written a number of articles for the CPI website. She you know, reminded me that a good topic to talk about might be the overlap between synthetic leftism and fascism. Because, look, at the end of the day, most synthetic leftists are, are not fascists. I'm not saying they're fascists, right? Um, and yes, yes, Char Char Darling does rule, Peter Coffin. Uh, yes, she does. And, uh, you know, most, most synthetic leftists are not fascists, all right? They're not. But they're constantly calling us fascists, right? And, you know, there's an element of... Uh, you know, they, they say the pot calling the kettle black. You ever hear that? Shout out to Char Char Darling. The pot calling the kettle black. The pot calling the kettle black. 
Uh, there's an element of, you know, I think it's in the Christian gospels. Jesus Christ says, uh, don't complain about the speck in your neighbor's eye when you have a log in your own eye. And synthetic leftism, not Marxism, Leninism, not socialism, not class struggle, progressive, working class politics. No, 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 no. But this synthetic left, hippie counterculture, middle class, pessimistic stuff, the toxic poison that is flowing out of your cell phone and out of your laptop screen every day that says there are too many people in the world, we need to reduce the human population, that says, you know, that we need to, we need to, you know, we need to use drugs and that we need to, we need to be, you know, you know, be hopeless and have no points and we need to be angry all the time. And, you know, that, that, you know, that deviation has a lot in common with fascism. It really does. And um, we should talk about that. We should talk about that. So one of the first things I want to talk about, and I, I've got many examples of this, but, uh, you know, historically, right around the time of the 1930s in Europe, uh, there was a left, and it was Marxists, communists, there was communist parties. Um, and then there were more moderate Marxists, like social Democrats, that were not anti-imperialist, that were reformist. And then you had mainstream society, right? And then you had the far right. Well, among Marxists, the primary viewpoint was atheism. Marxists believed in historical and dialectical materialism. They did not believe in, in a god. Um, they rejected uh, the notion that there was, there was a god. They, they advocated only scientific and rational thinking, etc. Mainstream view in Europe and the United States was a Christian one. You had Catholics, you had Protestants, um, you know, and you had other religions too, but it was primarily, you know, Catholics and Protestants. That was the mainstream view. Occultism was a practice of the far right. Let me repeat myself. Occultism was a practice of the far right wing. Now, you would never know this in the United States. We're taught that, you know, the occult, mysticism, Eastern religions, you know, witchcraft, all of that is left wing. Books like Socialism, Utopian, or Scientific by Frederick Engels, right? You know, but in the United States, we're taught, we're taught that, uh, that, that Marxism, you know, that, that Marxism and, uh, and somehow Marxism and occultism are on the same team. We're both leftists, right? People practicing witchcraft, people, uh, you know, people engaging in mysticism, you know, people trying to summon spirits and talk to the dead in weird ceremonies. Uh, you know, we're taught that that and communism are like the same. They're part of the counterculture or something. You just gave me a flashback to my time in the U.S. Navy. It was a very weird place. I had to work through it, get out. Poverty graft. Wow. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about that. Poverty graft. But the occult, historically, has been associated with the far right wing. Great example of that. In the United States, one of the main Nazi groups during the 1930s, the main, one of the main organizations that was supporting Hitler in the United States, was called the Silver Legion of America. The Silver Legion of America. The leader of it was William Dudley Pillay. 
Are you on Rumble or any other platforms? William Dudley Pillay. You can look up William Dudley Pillay. William Dudley Pillay, the Silver Legion of America, the Silver Shirts, William Dudley Pillay was an occultist, right? He, he performed seances. Uh, he believed he could talk to the dead. Uh, he, uh, he wrote a book claiming that he'd had this out-of-body experience where he was abducted into outer space and he spoke with Jesus and various dead deities and they sent him back to Earth. Um, yeah. Yeah, this main Nazi dude was an occultist and he went to prison uh, during World War II for being a Nazi collaborator. And, you know, and then after World War II, he came out of jail and he was talking about UFOs and he was promoting belief in space aliens and stuff. And then he died in 1965, William Dudley Pillay. Well, this guy, you look at him, he was an occultist, right? He believed in mystic mysticism, you know, Eastern religions. You know, he claimed he could talk to the dead, etc. Now, he also claimed to be Christian or whatever. Now, he claimed that his, his, it was a mixture of Christianity and occultism. He called his political party the Christian party. But this guy was, he was an occultist. Occultism is not left-wing, right? I mean, I mean historically, it's not. Um, the Nazis had a particular admiration for Tibet, you know? And that's the crazy. Liberal Hollywood loves Tibet. Right, they love Tibet. They love the Dalai Lama. They hate the Chinese Communist Party. Oh, they made that movie Seven Years in Tibet. Uh, you know, well, the the book Seven Years in Tibet is written by a member of Hitler's SS, Heinrich Harrer, who wrote the book Seven Years in Tibet. Was an actual SS member. He was a member of Hitler's SS. He was a German SS officer, a member of the German, you know, secret service and military. And he was in Tibet, and he wrote this book all about how Tibet was this mystical, beautiful kingdom, and then the evil communists came in there and ruined everything. And that's what Hollywood believes. That's what, you know, Richard Gere uh, believes. That's what, um, you know, that's what, you know, all these liberal, you know, uh, what's his name? Um, oh, goodness. What's his name? The, uh, the, the um, and I can't even remember. That all these liberal Hollywood actors who want to free Tibet, and they hate China, they hate communism. That's what they believe. Well, the Nazis believe that. The Nazis loved the Dalai Lama. And why did they love the Dalai Lama? Because there were no protests in Tibet and there were no strikes in Tibet. The Dalai Lama ruled with an iron fist and anybody who got in the way of the Dalai Lama was crushed. They used reincarnation. This is a big thing, right? The way reincarnation is taught, karma reincarnation is taught in the West. The idea is, you know, if you lead a good life, you live a good life in this life, you're going to reincarnate into somebody who has a more comfortable position. You're going to be rewarded in the next life. But if you do something bad in this life, you're going to be reincarnated as an ant or something like that, right? So lead a good life and you can be reincarnated into a good life. Well, that, that sounds okay. However, the way that's used in India, the way that's used in Tibet is very different. If you're poor in Tibet under the Dalai Lama, they said, oh, you must have done something bad in your previous life. So you deserve it. And you shouldn't go on strike and you shouldn't protest. But if you're just humble enough, you'll get reincarnated and you'll be, have a more comfortable position in your life. That's the way it was used. Reincarnation and karma was used to justify the oppression of people. It was argued that you are born you're born into where, where you're born because that is reward or punishment for what you've done 
in previous life. And a lot of these things that we associate with Buddhism, right? And there are many different interpretations of Buddhism, right? I'm not bashing the Buddhist religion, right? I mean, I, I mean, there are many different interpretations, right? But just like Christianity during the Middle Ages was used to say, be a good little peasant and don't ever revolt because then you'll go to heaven and don't ever protest and then you'll go to heaven. Just like they used Christianity in medieval Europe to justify the oppression of people. In Asia, Buddhism was used that way. And a lot of these concepts that are, you know, now in westernized Buddhism, they talk about mindfulness training and learning to accept your conditions in life, et cetera. The way that was used was to tell peasants and slaves and poor people, don't rebel. This is what, this is part of what the universe wants for you. Learn to accept your position. Be at peace with where you are. And that Sure, you know, just like any other religion, right? There are there are progressive interpretations of it and there are reactionary interpretations of it. And in Tibet, under the Dalai Lama, the interpretation of Buddhism that they had was used to justify oppression. They said if you were poor in this life, it's because it's your punishment for being bad in another life. They said that, you know, you know, being at peace with the universe and, and that means you should never resist injustices, that means you should accept whatever is thrown at you. That's what it was being done. And the Nazis, who were not Asian, who were European, loved this stuff. And they went to Tibet and they dug up the skulls, trying to figure out, trying to determine if the, uh, if the, if the ancient Tibetans were, you know, were, you know, somehow the Germans were descended from the ancient Tibetans. Um, you know, and they were, they were obsessed and they liked the caste system in India. And they liked Tibetan Buddhism, and they liked all of this, uh, all of this, uh, you know, this this oppressive stuff, because they thought it was a way to justify, to justify, uh, you know, the hierarchical society they wanted to create. The Nazis uh, largely believed, largely believed uh, that uh, that that social hierarchies were good. That some people, some races, some genders. Some ethnic groups, some people were just superior to others, and that's the way it is. That's essential to fascist beliefs. And a lot of the Eastern mystical religions were about reinforcing that doctrine. And so the far right loved them. You know, Shane Spellman says, I'm in Australia, and in my conservative city, I see the Falun Gong doing demonstrations at major shopping centers, playing their music, take down the CPC, Showing photos of torture inflicted. Can you talk about the fallen gong? Yes, I can. And that is on the list. We've got a lot to say about the fallen gong. But, but yeah, the, the far right wing, uh, they were really into this. And it wasn't just the Nazis. It was also the Italian fascists, which brings me to, I have evidence here. Now, I'm going to hold this book up and someone's going to screenshot it and say I'm endorsing this book. Well, if they do that, they're lying. They're lying. Right. But, you know, I can't stop them. But this is a, an, a fascist book I'm about to hold up. It's called Man Among Ruins by Julius Evola. Right. Julius Evola was an Italian fascist. Right. And he was he lived in Italy and the fascist government newspapers started publishing his writings uh, during the 1920s and 30s. He was a, a an Italian nobleman who was a really far right wing individual. Um, and he actually, eventually, this book came out after World War II, he denounced fascism for not being right-wing enough. The Nazis were, and the Nazis and the Italians were, the Italian fascists were not right-wing enough. That was his beliefs. But this book by Julius Evola, an ideologue of Italian fascism, um, this book, Man Among Ruins, I want, I want you to look at the publisher here. Who publishes this book? 
You can't make this up. Who's the publisher here? Look at the publisher. Look, see, see that? Look at the publisher there. It's published by Inner Traditions in Rochester, Vermont. I'm trying to get in focus there. Inner Traditions in Rochester, Vermont. Go to the website of Inner Traditions. Go to the website of Inner Traditions. Um, go to the website of Inner Traditions. Oh, wow. So my, my first camera went out, and now, huh, all right. And we're back. All right, that was interesting. Go to the website of Inner Traditions. Inner Traditions is a publishing company, and it's a company based in Vermont. What does it say here? Now, does this look like a conservative publishing company? No. Uh, it is books for the mind, body, and spirit since 1975. Right? What books do they sell? They sell yoga manuals. How to how to do yoga? Um, and uh, what else do they sell? Um, you know, they sell um, they sell uh, you know uh, your symphony of selves, three books of occult philosophy. This is a hippy dippy publishing company. In, in Vermont, of all places, in Bernie Sanders land, that, that sells the writings of Julius Evola. Julius Evola, one of the main ideologues of the far right and Italian fascism. Now, that's, that's who publishes this book. You know, there's, there's also, there's not just this book. This is Man Among Ruins by Julius Evola. There's Revolt Against the Modern World by Julius Evola. And if you read Julius Evola's writings, it's what I was just talking about before. He likes Hinduism. He likes Buddhism. He likes ancient Tibet. He's going around the ancient world trying to find what he calls the organic state. And he argues that there's some kind of perfect society where everyone knows their place and everyone is obedient. There's no rebellion. There's a perfect social order. He calls it the organic state. And he's argued that we've gotten away from the organic state and we need to return to the organic state. This is the traditionalist philosophy. And I want to read you, this just, this is just the icing on the cake. So, so there, there's a section, there's a chapter in this book. This is a fascist book, mind you. Chapter six of his book, of his book, you know, Man Among Ruins. Um, chapter six is called Work, the Demonic Nature of the Economy. You see that? Work the demonic nature of the economy. This is what it says in the chapter. This is what it says. It has been report, reported that in a non-European country, which could boast an ancient and rich past, an American company, upon realizing the scarce participation of local inhabitants, who had been hired for a certain project, believed that the right way to motivate them consisted in doubling their pay. The result was the majority of the workers cut their working hours in half, believing that the initial pay was enough to satisfy their natural and normal needs. Those people thought it was absurd to spend more time than necessary to produce their pay. It has also been reported that Renan, after visiting an industrial exposition, left saying, there are so many things in life that I can do perfectly well without. Compare these two views with Stakhanovism, the economic activism, the civilization of wealth, and the consumer society and its applications. Yeah, Julius Evola is pushing degrowth. 
He's pushing degrowth. He's saying that these ancient societies were more pure because nobody wanted to work hard and build new things. It wasn't like the Soviet stakhanovism where people are trying to build and construct and advance and build new things. That when people just are happy with what they have, they don't want to go out and build new things. They don't want to create. They just accept their position in life. That's good. Well, that's what fascists believe. And that's a big, big part of synthetic leftism. The anti-consumerism, this Michael Moore movie, Planet of the Humans, Malthusianism, the idea that growth is bad, uh, that, you know, that the problem with capitalism is that it keeps growing and society keeps advancing. That's a big argument we hear from these synthetic left types. That, that stuff that, that I'm describing here, that all is right wing, right? That's right wing stuff. The idea there's too many people in the world. We need to reduce the population. The idea people shouldn't work so hard and try to achieve their dreams. The idea that the world isn't getting better. We're headed for a great ecological catastrophe to bring things back into harmony with Mother Earth. All of those are fascist ideas. Those are all fascist ideas. Marxism is a progressive ideology. Marxism is an ideology that says human beings are endowed with a specific creative power, and they're marching forward, trying to advance toward a higher plane, a higher stage, a higher mode of production, and that capitalism, the irrational rule of profits and greed, is holding back human potential. Only under capitalism are people homeless because there are too many houses. Only under capitalism are people hungry because there's too much food. Capitalism, with its sustained problem of lots of overproduction, where innovations like self-driving cars would lead to mass unemployment among truck drivers and cab drivers and transportation workers. Capitalism. Capitalism is holding back human potential. It's holding back human growth. And it's time for the working people of the world to rise up and take control of the means of production, the banks, factories, and industries and organize them rationally to serve public good and not the profits of a few. And when the economy is organized to serve the people and not the profits of a wealthy few, when the banks, factories, and industries are rationally planned under public ownership, growth will no longer be restrained by the irrationality of capitalism. And we can then move toward the ultimate goal of a stateless, classless world. We can break down all forms of oppression and all social hierarchies. Equality can be realized by vast material abundance. We can create a society, a society from each according to their own ability to each according to their needs. That's the goal of socialism. That is the goal of Marxism, is to create so much material abundance that inequality breaks down that divisions between mental and manual labor breaks down, uh, that people can work just because they feel like working, the state itself can fade away. That, that is the goal of socialism, right? That is fundamentally progressive. What the synthetic left believes, that human beings are a cancer on Mother Earth, that people shouldn't go out and work hard, that we should be exploring ancient mystical traditions where people never protested and were just content with their place in life. Uh, you know, this stuff is right wing. And I mean, it is right wing. And there's a reason that the far right loved it. Meanwhile, a lot of things that people think are fascist are not, right? You know, people marching in unison, right? That's not fascist. That's just a thing people in groups do. 
People wearing uniforms is not fascist, right? Communists wore uniforms long before fascists ever did, right? Having a salute to recognize your organization. Communists had their salute, the fist that comes from the Paris Commune. And so fascists invented their salute, which I'm not going to do for obvious reasons, uh, but they invented their salute as a way to counter the salute of the communists, right? Using red flags, uh, using, you know, having a leader with a distinct mustache. Lenin had that very famous goatee. You know, Stalin had his handlebar mustache, right? That was long before Hitler. Stalin had his handlebar, you know, Lenin had his goatee. And what was that about? It was like back then when they printed propaganda posters, they couldn't get into detail very much. And so if you put a very distinct goatee, there was a bald guy with a goatee, everybody knew that was Lenin. If there was a, a guy with a handlebar mustache, everybody knew that was Stalin, right? And that's, it was just a technique. It was just a method, right? And so then the Nazis copied it. The Nazis, yes, they wore uniforms. And the reason they wore uniforms is because communists had worn uniforms and it had been effective, so they stole it, right? The Nazis invented their own salute. That was because communists had their salute, the fist, and it was very effective, so they copied it. You know, communists used red armbands first. That is true. Right. And, and that there's nothing fascist about being in a group and working to achieve a goal. Right. Davos and stakeholder capitalism. There's nothing fascist about working together to achieve something. There's nothing fascist about being in a group. There's nothing fascist about being part of a community. Nothing, nothing remotely fascist about it. And the cancer of liberalism, the idea that we need to break down any sense of collectivism, the idea that we need to, to completely, just completely break down any notion of human solidarity and reduce human beings to atomized individuals who are so weak and they stand alone and they can be crushed. That is a toxic ideology. That is the ideology of neoliberalism. It is very, very dangerous. What are your thoughts on Malthusian topic, LaRouche and his possible place in the communist movement? Okay. I've answered that before, but I can answer it again. Malthusianism. Um, so, you know, I, I just want to be very, very clear on that. I just want to be very, very clear on that, 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 that a lot of things that the synthetic left says are fascist are not, they're just people in groups working for a cause. Uh, meanwhile, a lot of things about the synthetic left, like Malthusianism, like occultism, like believing growth is bad. Uh, you know, like glorifying primitive feudal societies in the East and adopting, adopting, you know, the, the practices of Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, a lot of these things are very fascist in their nature. And so I want to thank Char Char Darling for the suggestion uh, that I talk about that. And now, uh, now we're going to do our roll call names and locations. I will call you out as I see you names and locations. Who's with us tonight? I'm going to call you out as I see you. Uh, that was my opening remarks, and so now I'm going to call you out as I see you, and then I'll be answering your super chat questions for the rest of the night. So there you go. Um, there you go. And, and in Rockfin, I see that Seattle from the left coast says, thanks, Caleb, for sharing your brain. Uh, One Love says maybe he's trying to be hypnotic. No, I'm not, but there you go. Um, so who is with us tonight? Who is with us tonight? All right. Um, we've got We've got Ryan in Oakland. We've got Ramsey in Cincinnati, Ohio. JT24 in Mississippi. Uh, Chris Morlock in San Francisco. Jared from Virginia is with us. Piano Man in New York City, St. Louis, Utah. Killen from Milwaukee. Nadia in East Harlem, New York City. Um, who else is with us? Sorry, I'm skipping from various, various, um, various streams. Uh, address the 
Oedipal tendencies in U.S. political culture. Okay. Oedipal tendencies in U.S. All righty. Very good. Uh, we'll go up, go up, go up. All right. Uh, we got uh, Mo in Toronto. We got Sam in Australia. We got Antibes in France. Uh, who else we got here? We got Michelle in Mexico. We got San Antonio, Texas, Zalette. We got uh, Matt in Baltimore. We got Fred in Alameda County. Vidal in Boston. Uh, Chimuco from Mexico. Christian from North Paramus, New Jersey. Zachariah in Seattle. Char Char Darling. Shout out to you, Char Char. Shout out to you, Char Char Darling. Everyone should go follow Char Char Darling on Twitter. A great John Brown volunteer full of great suggestions. Uh, Tim Wilson, uh, uh, Antibes, France. Um, Seth from Louisiana. Thanks for Huey Long posting. I love Huey Long, by the way. You know, we got David Fox in Bendigo, Australia. We got Brian Schaefer. I can't put everyone on the screen. We're, we'll be here all night. Austin, Austin. Um, I've got to go down again, right? We got uh, Northern Michigan, A Better America. Mark from San Diego. B-Level from Canada. Check out B-Level's channel. He's got a great channel. Great stuff he does over there. B-Level is awesome. Check out his chats with Ramiro, his chats with, uh, with Flame of Liberation. They do great stuff. Joan in Sydney, Australia. Alex from Brazil. Daniel in Seattle. Um, Anna Louise Strong, autobiography, I Change World, or biography right in her soul. Okay. All right. Anna Louise Strong. Autobiography. Worlds for right All right, writing it down. Thank you for that super chat. I love Anna Louise Strong, by the way. She is amazing. Anna Louise Strong is great. Um, we got Jamie in St. Paul, Minnesota. Shout out to you, Jamie. Uh, Robert in the Aloha State. Uh, we got Gallon in North Carolina. Fusong uh, in California. Joseph Gale uh, in New York on the double right now, but turning in, of course. All right, great. We love we love you, Joe. Joe is a longtime friend of mine. Rees from Rees from Adelaide, Australia, Northern Michigan, Westchester County, uh, New York. Mark from San Diego, uh, Sydney, Australia. Alex from Brazil. Zane from Sacramento, Lockport, New York. Daniel in Seattle. Uh, stocking shelves at Walmart, solidarity with you Walmart workers, Glasno, Big Sore, San Antonio, Texas, Patrick from Rhode Island, Dario from Brooklyn, shout out to you, Dario, Quinn and Meredith in Washington, Capitalist Hell World USA, uh, Austin in Massachusetts, Akron, Ohio, Nathaniel in Washington. Good stuff, folks. Kieran from San Diego, Jason in Georgia. Hi, Caleb, Mark from California, Auckland, New Zealand. Um, oh, this is great stuff. Uh, crypto has been a growing culture of profit sharing. Uh, it's interesting. Kieran from San Diego, Jason in Georgia. All right, folks. Um, I think, right. Oh, we got far in Texas, right? Gallon in North Carolina. Um, there we go. There we go, folks. All right. Well, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. Always good to have you here with us uh, while we're having yet another amazing conversation here uh, on many different platforms. I wanted to let folks know that, um, Pretty soon, I'm, you know, starting next week, I'm going to have a show exclusively on Rockfin. Uh, we're making some nice artwork for it. It's going to be called Main Trend Analysis is the name of the show. Uh, Main Trend Analysis. So that, that'll be one thing that we're doing on Rockfin. But I actually had another idea today, right? And this was an interesting idea, right? Um, because, uh, you know, we talk about a lot of different things on these streams. And we talk about Marxism and socialism. We talk about world events. We talk about history and art and 
you know, all kinds of things, psychology and economics and all kinds of stuff. But one thing that does, it has come up quite a bit lately is religion. But some people love it when I talk religion, when I talk about, you know, when I talk about the Bible, people love that. People love it when I talk about the Bible. Some people don't. Some people don't like it when I talk about the Bible. Some people, that's just not their thing. And I'm not here to push my religion on, on you folks. But one thing I thought about is since it's kind of a divide here, since some people like it when I talk religion, some people don't. On Rockfin, I am going to do a series of, of classes that will be exclusively on Rockfin um, called The Bible and the Proletarian Movement, where we're going to talk about the historical overlap between communism and Christianity, the relationship between communism and Christianity. And it'll be exclusively on Rockfin. And it'll be exclusively on there. So if your religion's not your thing, you don't have to look at it. But if you like it when I talk about religion, if you like it when I talk about religion and the Bible and Christianity, when you if you like that stuff, you can watch on Rockfin and you can be part of the conversations on Rockfin. And if not, uh, we'll just keep doing what we normally do on this channel. I figured that was the best way to go about it. So uh, we're gonna do we're gonna do a a religion a series of religion classes that will only be on Rockfin. Uh, we're also going to have main trend analysis on Rockfin. But for most of the time, I'll be on here on all platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and all of that. But we're going to do Rockfin for the Bible series, and we're going to do Rockfin for main trend analysis. And the rest uh, the rest will just stay, you know, as we're doing here. We're going to have regular streams where I just come on here and talk to you all. Um, so, um, so there you go. And uh, there you go. Um, you know, Kristen says, the reason, waiting for a reason to pull the trigger on Rockfin sub, and this is it. Well, there you go. Yes. Uh, I'm going to do the Bible and and the proletarian movement. That'll be on Rockfin. Um, and, uh, you know, but that way, because look, I mean, look, the thing is, I don't I don't believe in having any religious test for a political organization. Right. Oh, someone says, you know, he's you know, not religious, but it sounds interesting. Um, well, there you go. Everyone's welcome. But I don't believe there should be any religious test. Right. That I will work with atheists. I will work with Muslims. I will work with Jews. I will work with Hindus. I will work with pagans. I will work with people of any religious persuasion. My, you're, I am not here to save your soul, right? Uh, you know, I'm interested in politics. I'm here in, interested in saving the country from capitalism. Uh, you know, your relationship with God or, or, or gods or goddess or whatever is your business. Um, it's your business. Um, you know, uh, it's your business. And so, you know, that said, though, I think the topic of religion is a very interesting one. So I would like to, to talk, um, you know, about that with people. But I don't want to do it on here in a way that some people really don't want to hear that. Some people really want to hear it. So we're going to do some exclusive streams on that, and that'll be good. Um, so that's that's how we're going to do that. So that's all the more reason to get on Rockfin. Um, so there you go. There you go. Um, all right. Well, folks, um, like I said, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. Um, oh, uh, somebody just sent me a tip. Uh, could you talk about the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset? Um, we'll do. We'll put that on the list. Thank you, Seattle, for that uh, that 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 tip on Rockfin. Uh, World Economic Forum Great Reset. Thank you very much, Seattle. Much appreciated. All right. So now we're going to start answering super chat questions. Um, and hopefully, I don't run out of steam too quick here. I'd like to go for as long as possible tonight. Saturday night is awesome. Right. There's a lot of people here tonight. Um, and this is awesome. I, I hope we can go, you know, until the break of dawn because there's a lot of us here. I'm, I'm seeing that there's 275 people watching this right now. Can you believe that? 275. Well, if you tweet this out, if you post this on your wall, if you invite all your friends, that could be a much bigger number. This is great. 275 people are watching this right now. Isn't that amazing? 
right? Um, we have something really, really special at this community. Don't deny it. What we do here is awesome. We have something really amazing in this community. Um, and so, yeah, we are on fire tonight. And I hope that I can keep answering these super chats for as long as possible because this is great. And you guys, you guys are awesome. We're just going to keep going, right? Nothing can bring us down. That's the main thing. You know, if you have grit in life, if you can keep going in the face of hardship, if, you know, if you can have a bad day and say, you know what, that was a bad day, but you know, tomorrow I'm just going to keep going. I'm, I'm, you know, that is your greatest asset. If you can have grit, if you can grit your teeth and just keep going, uh, you can you can be very successful in life. You may not achieve everything you want to achieve. I'm not an idealist. I don't say you can do anything if you just try hard enough. There are some things you can't do. But if you have the ability to just keep going, if you have drive, if you have the ability to push through, you can achieve great things in life. And that is a, a very important attribute. I want more people to have grit. I want more people to make sacrifices. I don't want more people to be able to endure. Look, when I was a kid, I was a long distance runner. Um, you know, I was in seventh and eighth grade. I ran cross country and I was not a very good runner. I was not a very good runner. Honestly, I'm just not an athlete. I'm not a natural athlete. My body, you know, my whole family, I'm not descended from natural athletes, but I was, I was decent on the cross country team. Uh, you know, I could get like fourth place, you know, uh, from the team, from my own team, you know, sometimes. And one of the way, the way that I did it was I learned to endure it. Right. Um, and often at the very end of the race, the very end of the race, I would see that finish line coming up, right? The finish line would be 300 yards away, 200 yards away. And I would think, okay, the race is almost over. It was a two mile race in cross country when I was in, in junior high, it was a two mile race. And I would see that finish line coming up and I would think, okay, this race is going to be over pretty soon. Um, why bash trashes by nationalism? That, that race would be, you know, would, you know, would be the end of the race. The finish line would be right up there. And so I would think, okay, you know, I'm almost done. But if I can give it everything I've got, you know, if I can give it everything I've got, right? Everything I've got, would I, you know, would I, would I, you know, what can I do? And so at the final, at the very end of the race, I would just run at it. Um, I would just run at it as fast as I could. And I would usually pass like five, six, seven people at the very end of the race. And I would just go at it. And you would get this feeling where like all the moisture in your body comes up into your chest. And it would just be like, ah, and you would just give it everything you had. And you would pass people at the very end of the race. Um, and usually uh, there were times where I vomited. I would then go through that finish line and vomit at the end, you know, but you would throw everything you had at the very end of the race. Right. And, and it's the ability to endure. Right. I think that one of the things that has gotten me the furthest in life, right, is has been my ability to endure. I have been in some bad situations, folks. I have been in some very bad situations in my life, but I have pulled through them and I have remained motivated. And that is something I, you know, that a lot of people struggle with. Um, and I'll just be real. Okay. I am not a doctor. I am not a psychiatrist. So I'm not giving anybody any medical advice here. Talk to a doctor, talk to a psychiatrist, talk to a psychologist. I'm not giving you that advice. But I personally wonder if a lot of the medications they put kids on these days kill their grit. I'll just be real with you. You know, if a kid is in third grade and he's full of energy, they say, oh, he's got ADD. He needs Ritalin. 
you know, and, and if the, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the, uh, the child with Asperger's syndrome, right. Who might be not getting well, they give them, Oh, okay. We'll give you uh we'll give you uh antipsychotic medicine. Right. And that kills these people's, these children's grit, right. It, it kind of takes away their ability to push through, right. It makes them tired. It makes them docile. Um, and I wonder if that's one of the, you know, when they talk about the, the problems facing, the Zoomers and the millennial generation, I wonder if it has to do uh, with these medications that are being handing out that just kind of dope these kids, right? That take energy, that make them tired all the time, make them hungry all the time, that take away their ability to, to just go, go, go. Grit and the ability to put through hardship is one of the most important attributes you can have. Um, it's one of the most important attributes you can have. Um, and it, it's, it's, you know, it's very difficult. And you know, people who've suffered a lot of trauma in their life, their parents abused or their, their relatives abused them, or they were in a long-term hard situation. It can be very hard to develop the confidence. A lot of it is confidence. You need to develop confidence. And so uh, that's just kind of my thoughts there. I don't know why um, a wealthy tech entrepreneur wanted to support your movement. Would you be open to it? Yes. But I'll, I'll you know, Austin, uh, would you be open to support tech entrepreneur? You know, all right, wrote it down, wrote it down. But uh, there you go. But anyway, I don't know why I uh, I ranted about that. Um, I don't, and uh, I don't know why I ranted about that. But but yeah, that's one thing I I feel like. And again, I I just I pre no one should like not take their medication because Caleb said this on a stream. Okay, obviously don't do that. Talk to a professional. Talk to a doctor. But I I feel like psych meds. They hand out like water. They give kids drugs for everything now. Oh wow, the kid. Uh, the kid yelled in class, give him some drugs. Oh, wow. The kid's depressed, give him some drugs. Oh, the kid's not getting good grades, give him some drugs, give him some drugs. And it's like they hand out these drugs and these drugs dope kids and they they make them, they just kind of kill their grit, right? Um, you know, uh, one thing that I've always liked, um, you know, and I don't particularly like Frederick Nietzsche, but one of his quotations from his book, Thus Spake Zarathustra, um, you know, he wrote, uh, one must be filled with chaos to give birth to a dancing star. I have that quote on my Facebook. One must be filled with chaos to give birth to a dancing star. One must be filled with chaos to give birth to a dancing star. Because this is true. Greatness and great achievements and great victories often come in states of difficulty and opposition in high energy environments, you know, often you will look back at your life and say, the time in my life when I got the most done, when I achieved the most, has been a time where I was really stressed out, where I was really angry, where I didn't know if I was going to make it. It is, it is that chaos and that difficulty that gives you power, right? And it is out of chaos, it is out of chaos uh, that, that great things are achieved. For example, World War I, the nightmare, the chaos, the bloodshed, the horror of World War One is what brought the Bolshevik Revolution into the world. It was out of the nightmare of World War One that we got the first socialist state, the first workers' state. And it was out of the nightmare of World War One that a deeply poor, impoverished country like Russia had a socialist revolution and was able to set on the road to becoming an industrial superpower. Out of the nightmare of World War One, out of the chaos of World War One, we got a dancing star called the Soviet Union. And out of the chaos of World War II and the chaos of feudalism and instability in China, out of the nightmare, we got, you know, the socialist revolution uh, that, that set China on the course of, of building a new world, right? And, and, you know, 
Some might argue that this means we should be in favor of, of mass destruction. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that that often, you know, often, often it is people that are full of vigor and energy, uh, and sometimes that energy is chaotic, and sometimes that energy gets them in a lot of trouble when they're young, and sometimes that energy makes them very hard to control as parents uh, and makes them very misbehaving children. Sometimes those those children have they have strength of character that will help them achieve things, you know? Um, and so, you know, when I, when I see these younger folks who are just being given drugs, you know, they just hand them these drugs that make them complacent, that space them out and make them tired. And I meet younger people that are just hopeless. And they say, what's the point of waking up in the morning? What's the point of life? You know, who cares? You know, and they just sit on the internet, you know, and they just feel, sit on the internet and they feel hopeless. I feel like, um, feel like, like perhaps there's a problem there. So that's just my personal opinion. So there you go. I just wanted to get that out there. That said, um, now we're going to start answering these super chat questions. The Battle of Seattle, where the anarchists doing good work. 1999 uh, was the Battle of Seattle. I remember because I was 12 years old and I had no idea. I was just getting vaguely interested in socialism and Marxism. And I remember the Battle of Seattle happened. It was on, I remember my parents, they got Newsweek magazine. And I remember seeing the pictures of the police in riot gear and people spray painting, you know, circle A's onto stores. And I remember it said anti-capitalist activists. And I was like, wait, anti-capitalists, does that mean they're communists or they're anarchists? I was confused about what these people in Seattle believe. I didn't, I didn't know what they believed. And um, it was all over the news. The anarchists are everywhere. The Battle of Seattle, the anarchists and you know, the school shootings at Columbine had just happened. So U.S. media was playing up the idea, you know, there may be anarchists at your school. If you see a young person who could be an anarchist, report them immediately. It was the beginning of this, this culture. But, you know, the World Trade Organization was meeting in Seattle. Now, what is the World Trade Organization? This is important, right? So the IMF is the International Monetary Fund. And the IMF loans countries to, loans money to developing countries. Um, and, you know, the World Trade Organization is a treaty, right? So it's a little bit different. The IMF and the World Bank are institutions that were created at the Bretton Woods Conference after World War II, the United States and the non-communist countries, the, the U.S.-aligned countries. They met, they had the Bretton Woods Conference, and they formed the World Bank, they formed the IMF, and they formed the World Trade Organization. And I think the GATT, uh, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs. They formed these institutions to kind of regulate the world economy. So the IMF loans money to developing countries, um, but in exchange for getting those loans, they have to do what the IMF says. The IMF will, will say, you only get the loan if you, if you, you know, and generally it pushes neoliberalism. It says, okay, you know, Venezuela, if you want to get a loan, you know, you need to, you know, cut your public sector. Um, oh, you know, um, Guatemala, if you want to get a loan, fine, we'll loan you this money to build up your economy, but, you know, we have to, you have to privatize, you know, this or your healthcare or something like that. That's how it works. It's neoliberalism, right? They push neoliberalism. The World Trade Organization, the World Trade Organization is a body that basically has the ability to overrule economic policies of countries, right? So if the United States were to come up and say, you know what, we're going to put a tariff on steel, right? We want to protect the jobs of American workers in the steel industry. Um, so we're going to put a tariff on, on steel. Well, um, what would happen is the World Trade Organization would come forward and say, no, you can't, and would fine the American government millions of dollars. 
And the U.S. government would have to pay millions of dollars in a fine in order to pass this law. The World Trade Organization basically tells sovereign governments what they can and can't do in terms of economic policy. It's a world court. It's a world economic court set up by international bankers and set up by Wall Street corporations. It's not elected. They don't elect the people that run the World Trade Organization. Oh, no. These multinational corporations, you know, they appoint people to sit in the World Trade Organization and decide what laws countries can make and what laws countries cannot make. It is a despicable, despicable organization. Um, and it is a wing. It's part of the Bretton Woods, you know, you know, thing, right? And basically, uh, these entities appointed by the international bankers overlook uh, policies, uh, you know, if Ecuador wants to you know, make this regulation or, or, you know, allow this import or this export, or if, if they, if you do that, the world trade organization gets to look it over and, and overrule it. Now, now what's crazy is that, you know, when I scream about international bankers, there's all these people who say that's anti-Semitic, but it's like, no, like the world trade organization is real. The world bank is real. The international monetary fund is real. Uh, you know, uh, uh, JP Morgan chase is real. I mean, this stuff is real, right? And the World Trade Organization, the WTO, is a real group. And they were meeting in Seattle. And the AFL-CIO, uh, which is a labor union, you know, it's the big labor union federation in the United States, had a protest against the World Trade Organization. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a peaceful demonstration of labor unionists protesting, you know, uh, saying that, you know, that, that you know, there, there should be, you know, the USA should be allowed to have re legislation to protect American workers. Environmentalists came out and they, they pointed out that a lot of countries want to protect, want to pass environmental laws, uh, but the World Trade Organization would step in and block their environmental laws. See, there were a lot of environmentalists who dressed up like turtles and got arrested and stuff like that. Um, and uh, then there was the anarchist black bloc and they, they dressed in black so you couldn't tell who was who and they broke windows and, and stuff like that. And it was an episode of unrest. Um, and there was, you know, there was a lot of, you know, property destruction and tear gas went off and a lot of peaceful protesters were injured. Um, you know, it was, it was a, 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 it was called the battle of Seattle in 1999. Now what's interesting about the battle of Seattle in 1999, um, is that, um, you know, it was, again, a lot of the protesters were George Soros kind of people. And it's very weird because George Soros was supporting the IMF and the world bank and neoliberalism. But he was kind of an environmentalist. And it seemed like, you know, there were the labor unions that were protesting against the World Trade Organization. And then there were the George Soros people. And there were just these, this crowd of protesters, you know, who were tied to like George Soros and NGOs. There was a woman named Anita Roddick, uh, who was from Britain, and she was a big thing. It was, they called it the anti-globalization movement. Um, a lot of environmentalists, a lot of, you know, kind of hippie anarchist types that were Tied to NGOs, uh, Anita Roddick, uh, and Democracy Now! This was Amy Goodman's heyday. This is when Amy Goodman was a god, practically. Amy Goodman was like, you know, Democracy Now! was like the voice of these people. And they all loved Noam Chomsky. And there was this crowd of, so you had the labor unions that were marching against it. But then you also had this crowd of hippies with George Soros money and Amy Goodman and Anita Roddick and Naomi Klein. Naomi Klein comes out of this period. And they were just protesting against the, the you know, the AFL-CIO or against the World Trade Organization, et cetera. Um, that happened. Um, what's interesting is, you know, I mean, a lot of communists went to these rallies, too. They were there. The Revolutionary Communist Party participated, the Workers' World Party. 
There's a member of the Workers' World Party who died as a result of being hit with a rubber bullet at those demonstrations. Little known fact, but there was a man by the name of Key Martin. Key Martin was his name. You can Google him. Uh, Key Martin uh, was the leader of the Workers' World Party. Uh, he'd been a leader of the Youth Against War and Fascism group, and he was he was a he he made TV programs for local access TV, the People's Video Network, it was called. And he was filming the Battle of Seattle while it was happening. He was running around with a camera. And back then, you know, technology wasn't what it is now in 1999. And he was carrying a pretty big camera that he carried around. And he was, uh, you know, he was running around filming it. And the police shot him with a rubber bullet. Uh, and, it, you know, he had a pretty bad injury. Um, and he had blood clots uh, for the following year, and he died a year later. Now, he didn't die directly as a result of getting hit with the rubber bullet. But that injury that he sustained from the rubber bullet, combined with the blood clots that he had for the following year, it actually killed him. Uh, he died. Um, that was a big, that, that's a big deal, right? And I knew people who remembered. Whenever I would say Battle of Seattle, they'd say, Key Martin died. Uh, Comrade Key Martin was, was killed. Uh, you know, he died a year later as a result of being injured at the Battle of Seattle. Um, so, you know, I mean, that was, that was, you know, something that happened there. So, I mean, was the battle of Seattle a good thing? I mean, I generally, you know, I, I don't advocate violence, you know, and property destruction, but that said, you know, I mean, the cause was just, um, the cause was certainly just, uh, I remember being depressed in Seattle, sitting on a street corner in the rain, handing out pamphlets, bad memories. I'm sorry to hear that, Chris, but the cause was just the World Trade Organization is bad. I'm not sure why George Soros was funding it. But, you know, I got to tell you that that I, you know, we are very lucky to be alive now, right? If you are if you are my age or younger, you are very lucky to be alive because we are living in the last days of American capitalism. William Z Foster and Gus Hall and Huey Newton and, you know, Bobby Seale and and, you know, Fred Hampton would kill to be in our shoes because we are living we are living in the period where American capitalism will actually come down, right? We're living in a pre-revolutionary period where Western capitalism is collapsing, where Eurasia is rising. I mean, you know, socialism is on the march once again, but we're very lucky. But Generation X is not very lucky. The Gen X radicals, the people that were doing political stuff in the 80s and 90s, it sucked. Uh, you know, I mean, it was bad. It was not a fun time to be a communist in the United States in the 80s and in the 90s, right? In the 60s and 70s, a lot of exciting stuff was happening. But in the 80s and 90s, it was a pretty bad period. Um, it was hard to be a radical in the 80s and 90s. It was a pretty, pretty dark period, you know. Uh, you, know um, um, you know, it was a pretty dark period. Uh, you know, that was the time when, um, you know, the Soviet Union fell. That was the, the time when neoliberalism was on the march. Um, you know, and the world seemed to be going in the opposite direction. Now, you know, and the capitalist economy was was stabilizing. Thanks for that nugget of hope and for all that you do. Well, thank you, Boyd. Yeah, the capitalist economy was stabilizing as a result of the Soviet Union falling and and you know the, the market reforms in China and you know, for a lot of things, the the Soviet Union was you know had fallen and and capitalism was stabilizing in the 90s you had the boom of the 90s and you know western capitalism was coming, coming very stable and you know there were some important struggles that went on during that generation around the same time that you had people protesting at the battle of seattle there was a, a global movement to free mumia abu jamal the political prisoner the black panther the black revolutionary mumia abu jamal um, there was a global movement to free him 
uh, and all over the world, people were marching. Thousands of people went to Philadelphia for Mumia Abu Jamal. There was the struggle around AIDS, you know, and the AIDS crisis. And there were, you know, all kinds of, you know, LGBT folks protesting about AIDS and, you know, money for AIDS research. And, and so that was happening, you know, and that, um, that, you know, that, that this was a period in which a lot of, um, a lot of bad things were happening in the world, but you know, yeah, yeah, I'm 48 and Gen X time sucked. It was a, not a, not a good time to be a communist. Let me just put it that way. Um, let me just put it that way. And so shout out to those folks that, that endured these hard times that kept going in the face of hardship. I'm with you, but you know, we got to be very lucky that we're alive now. I, I'm very lucky that I was born uh, when I was born. I was born in 1987. Um, and I'm very lucky I was born in 1987 because that allows me to be what I am today, to be this voice here, uh, promoting socialism on the internet, uh, mobilizing people, building the Center for Political Innovation, because we are living in the last days of American imperialism. It's darkest before dawn, folks. Okay? This is what you need to understand. It is darkest before dawn. There was not a revolution in the 60s. The economy was too stable. Right. And yes, there were Black Panthers and revolutionaries, but the wider U.S. society didn't want to hear it. There was a strong labor aristocracy, you know, that didn't want to hear it. But now the U.S. economy is crashing. And meanwhile, uh, you know, you know, in the 90s, 80s and 90s, the Soviet Union was falling and, and communism was in retreat. But now Bolivarian socialism is rising in Latin America. China is rising as a socialist alternative to American imperialism. Everybody is acknowledging that capitalism is in a state of failure. You know, the kind of things that, you know, libertarians, the way they talk used to be mainstream. It used to be everyone talked that way. Everyone would be like, oh, capitalism is the best system ever. And people don't talk that way anymore. People on the right don't even talk that way anymore, right? I mean, people who believe in the free market are becoming a minority. Um, and the labor aristocracy is being demolished. And, you know, and it is now we're, we're entering a period where the working people of the United States can start to stand arm in arm with the people of the world against the billionaire bosses and bankers and war makers that dominate the United States. And we can fight for a government of action uh, that fights for working families. We are entering a period of great revolutionary potential. Um, so we should be thankful. We should be deeply, deeply thankful, deeply thankful uh, that we are living in the period that we're living in. Um, and we should acknowledge those who kept struggling in the 80s and the 90s for Mumia, uh, who kept marching, who protested the Battle of Seattle, et cetera. We should be acknowledging the hardship that they went through while we are thankful for the time we live in. All right. Who is worst? Uh, Nestor Machno or Pol Pot? Pol Pot by far. Uh, Nestor Machno was the, uh, was the Ukrainian anarchist who was against both the Bolsheviks and capitalism, who you know, ultimately aligned with the white army during the Russian civil war, uh, Ukrainian anarchist, not a good dude. We went into exile and was kind of an anarchist, uh, you know, an anti-Soviet psyop basically. Oh, look, I'm a real revolutionary. I hate communism. He was a, he was a proto Trotsky, basically Mac. No, uh, you know, Pol Pot was much worse. Pol Pot was the, you know, the leader was a communist from Cambodia. Uh, communist is a bit generous, claimed to be a communist from Cambodia. Uh, he was, you know, received funding and weapons from the CIA, educated in France. And around the time the Vietnam War was ending, he took over uh, Cambodia and he started executing all the real communists in Cambodia, all the Marxist-Leninists. He declared that uh, the Cambodia could have full communism in poverty, agrarian socialism, he called it. Um, he was an awful person, backed by the United States, the Kampuchea War, communists killing other communists. It was a nightmare. So Pol Pot was far worse, I would say. 
Shout out to Steven Estrada, who's running for city council. I like that guy. You know, he's got common good sense. Look at his tweets. That guy knows what he's talking about. Um, he knows what he's talking about. He believes in class struggle. Uh, he is a he is a patriotic socialist. He's great. I, I like I like Steven Estrada. Never met him. Never talked to him. But I got good feelings about him. Good guy. Uh, why is the Azov Battalion ignored by U.S. mainstream media? Well, it doesn't fit their narrative. You know, they're too busy trying to tell us Russia is fascist, right? And they want us to sympathize with Ukraine and the people that literally tear down World War II memorials. Um, it's the Ukrainian far right. They're always covering up for them. They just had a big parade for Nazi collaborator Stepan Bandera. Unbelievable. Very good point from Flame of Liberation. Go follow Flame of Liberation, by the way. Flame of Liberation is awesome. They do amazing stuff. Great videos, great points. I love Flame of Liberation. Um, but yeah, um, the mainstream media is, is covering up for Ukraine. Um, but I think it's awesome that Zelensky basically said that Biden is overplaying the danger of war. That's, that's awesome. Is Bitcoin anti-Marxist? No, no, it's not. I mean, you know, um, you know, I've got some Bitcoins, not very much. Um, you know, and I mean, I'm not like a Bitcoin enthusiast, but I don't think it's wrong. I don't think it's like inherently evil or something like that. I mean, you know, it's an idea. Look, Venezuela has made a lot of money from Bit uh, not Bitcoin, but their own cryptocurrency that they've developed. And, you know, look, I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, any situation where money seems to be made out of nothing, where money is just being made from other money is not a good situation ultimately. But, you know, it, it's not like it, it, it's just a thing, right? It's not like, you know, that's a big problem in all of capitalism, not just uh, not just money. Do you trust Bernie Sanders? Do you trust Bernie Sanders? All right. All right. Why is Tucker Carlson occasionally say the truth on networks on one of the worst imperialist networks? Oh, okay. Why is Tucker Carlson able to occasionally say the truth on networks? Writing it down. Very good. All right. Is Hollywood out of touch? Sure. Yeah. Those rich movie stars and, you know, that are living in their mansions and are all into their woke politics and performatively hate Donald Trump. Yes, they are out of touch. Absolutely. Uh, you know, Hollywood and, you know, that's the, that's the, you know, the synthetic left and that middle class revolutionary intelligentsia and middle class deviation. Yes. Hollywood is out of touch in a lot of ways. All right. Now, someone else said, American communists were patriots until the new left. And that's true. Yeah, the communists always said, we're the true Americans. We're the ones who really love America. The war makers don't love America. The people who let American kids go hungry, uh, you know, they don't love America. We love America. We are the true patriots. And the only way to really love America is to be an internationalist, to fight for the working class. You know, it's just common sense. Right? I mean, the fact that the fact that, that, that people can't comprehend this, right, that to really love America is to want it to move towards socialism, to really love America is to, to oppose, you know, imperialist wars for profits, is to want to get rid of racism, that, that we want a better life. And if we don't want a better life for people in this country, what are we doing? I mean, we shouldn't be in politics at that point, right? We, I mean, if you don't want to create a better life for working families in the United States, why are you trying to lead the United States, right? If you don't want you don't want to make a better life for the working class of the United States. Why would you, why, why should they rally behind your leadership, right? You know, the woke stuff, the, the middle-class guilt politics. No, 
We want a government of action that will fight for working families. That's what we want. We want to make life better for the working people. We want to tear down racism. You know, we want to fight for the colonized and oppressed peoples of the world. The future of the American working class is standing arm in arm in solidarity with the people around the world against the bosses and bankers that run the United States, against U.S. imperialism. We're the biggest patriots around. And I don't know why people can't understand that. All right. Socialism, Utopian and Scientific by Frederick Engels. That's one of the most important books in the history of Marxism. It's very short. Go and read it. It's three chapters long. Chapter one, he talks about utopian socialism. Robert Owen, and uh, Henry St. Simone, and Franz Fourier, and others, right? That's, that's chapter one. Chapter two, he talks about dialectical materialism, dialectics, and philosophy. And chapter three, he talks about socialism and how socialism will emerge from the proletariat and the class struggle. Very important text. One of the most important texts in the history of Marxism. Go and read Socialism, Utopian, and Scientific by Engels. Very important text. And by the way, all these people who don't know what socialism is should just go read that text. All these people who think socialism is a worker co-op scheme should go read that book. All the people who think that, uh, that, you know, that, that, that we want everyone to be poor should go read that book. Frederick Engels spells out very clearly that we are struggling to seize control of the state, use the state to control the means of production so that we can have vast material abundance, right? Um, you know, every problem with the modern left always gets back to socialism, utopian, and scientific. These people have no idea what that text, that it, it's very clearly spelled out. Frederick Engels is a much more clear writer than Marx. And what he explains there is actual Marxism. And what the synthetic left is preaching, it ain't. That ain't Marxism, uh, you know? So there you go. All right. Um, am I on Rumble and other platforms? I'm on Rumble. Um, I've posted a number of my videos on Rumble. Um, I don't stream on Rumble, but I'm, I'm on there. I post videos on there and I'm trying to, to get out of, you know, eventually, you know, YouTube is going to get rid of it. All right. I'm on here now and I'm slipping through. I don't know how, but I know eventually YouTube is going to get rid of me. They're going to get rid of me. Thank you for still fighting, Jamie Nix. They're going to get rid of me eventually. All right. I, I don't know why I'm, I'm slipping through right now. Maybe the government just wants to keep their eye on me. Maybe there's some FBI man sitting there writing down everything I'm saying, hoping I incriminate myself on here or something. But, uh, you know, maybe that's what it is. But eventually they're going to get rid of me on YouTube. OK, they are. Um, and when that happens, I'm not going away. Like we just talked. I had that whole rant about grit, grit and struggle. I am not going to go away. The Silicon Valley fascists remove me from YouTube. I'll still be on Rockfin. I'll still be elsewhere. Korean War in a nutshell. You know, I'll still be elsewhere. So, you know, um, we have to be ready for that. And I have to start laying the groundwork. A lot of my videos are on BitChute. Uh, I'm on Odyssey. Everything that I post on YouTube automatically gets uploaded to Odyssey. So you can follow me on Odyssey, right? Um, you know, I'm on Rockfin. We're going to start doing exclusive content on Rockfin pretty soon. So, oh yeah, I'm here and uh, we're going to keep going. We're going to keep going. Uh, Falun Gong. The Falun Gong is a religious cult in China. And what it comes from uh, is uh, it comes from the fact that uh, that the Chinese Communist Party's their relationship with traditional medicine has always been a little bit strange. So in China, you have what you call traditional Chinese medicine. Um, and that's, you know, herb, herbal remedies, um, you know, acupuncture where they put needles in you, uh, you know, and, it, and it's a way of treating illnesses as they put needles in you. Um, there's many different, um, uh, there's many different traditional practices where they like, have you eat, you know, the horn of a rhinoceros or shark cartilage or, you know, it, it's traditional Chinese medicine. So originally the Chinese communist party was against it. They said, this is not scientific. It's not Marxist. We're against it. 
Um, but China was really, really poor. And when Mao started the Red Army and he was recruiting a lot of peasants, often they didn't have enough medical supplies for everybody, right? They didn't have modern medicine. They didn't have enough doctors to get to people. But, you know, these shaman and these traditional medicine practitioners, every village had somebody who healed people with herbs or took care of people with traditional Chinese medicine. So Mao made a compromise. And Mao said, okay, we're going to allow traditional Chinese medicine, but we're not going to allow any of the religion that goes with it, right? We're scientific Marxists. So we're going to have the, 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 we'll allow people to, you know, eat the herbs and do the acupuncture or whatever, but we're not going to have any of the mystical religious practices that go with it. It was a compromise. And so the Chinese Red Army, uh, they started practicing traditional Chinese medicine. Um, then China had the Socialist Revolution. And these traditions have been around for thousands of years. Traditional Chinese medicine has been around for thousands of years. And the Chinese Communist Party allowed it. They allowed it to continue. Um, you know. And then during the Cultural Revolution, they went crazy with it. They went apeshit with it. Uh, Mao's wife and the Gang of Four, they went nuts. Right. And they started using traditional Chinese medicine because they argued it was not Western and it was it was it was communist. It was somehow more communist to use traditional Chinese medicine. Uh, there's a book. Um, there's a book called um, called uh, The Long Revolution, where Edgar Snow goes to China. And, he, you know, they, there's a chapter in it called Abortion with Acupuncture. And it's this woman gets an abortion. And the only only thing she the only anesthetic they use is acupuncture. I mean, I, that sounds awful to me, but you know, this woman, she's getting an abortion and they put needles into her, into her, her neck or something. And she feels no pain. Uh, there was a movie that, that was released from China during the gang of four period. And it was called Mao cures deaf mutes. Um, and it was about how, and it's probably true. I mean, I don't deny it. There were these children who were deaf and mute. They couldn't speak and they couldn't hear uh, because of childhood illness and with acupuncture, they cured their illness. I think that's probably true, right? Some forms of deafness you can cure by sticking a needle in somebody's ear or something. Don't go and do that because I said that, okay? <laughs> I'm, not in, I'm not endorsing that, okay? I'm just telling you that there probably was some way that somebody who knew what they were doing could do that, but I'm not, I don't know, okay? Again, not a doctor. This is not medical advice, you know, but anyway, you know, so there was this video, this, this, this not video, but this film that China sent all over the world during the Cultural Revolution about how Mao had cured people, you know, by acupuncture, cured their deafness, you know. So during the Cultural Revolution, traditional Chinese medicine went, went crazy, okay? So then in the 1980s, when Deng Xiaoping came to power, right, at that point, you know, you know during the Cultural Revolution, they'd been promoting traditional Chinese medicine, but they had, they had still suppressed all the religion that went with that. Okay, they still suppressed all the religion that went with traditional Chinese medicine. However, that's um, right. That's there you go, Joe. They got me. They got me. <laughs> but um, during the 1980s, okay, when Deng Xiaoping was in power, they started legalizing and allowing religion to flourish. They started rebuilding mosques in the Uyghur regions. They started letting Tibetan Buddhists, you know, have their ceremonies, and the Catholic Church was treated better. And Christians were treated better. The Cultural Revolution, there'd been a really anti-religious push that was really bad. So they started lifting the restrictions on religion. So then the traditional Chinese medicine and religion went crazy in China. And you had all kinds of crazy stuff going on. And I don't remember all the details, but there was a lot of traditional medicine where it was, it was charlatanism. People were being tricked. People were being lied to. Um, you know, a lot of strange, like religious practices were suddenly, you know, in the name of traditional Chinese medicine, um, um, 
what if a pro-socialist tech entrepreneur pretended a tech plot? Would it be po- would this be possible? And what stances would he take? Hmm. Oh, socialist tech entrepreneur. So, traditional Chinese medicine and the religious practices that went with it just really blossomed in the 80s. It was everywhere. And there were people doing things that were actually bad for their health. Um, You know, there was all kinds of stuff going on. So, the Chinese Communist Party had a meeting. They had a meeting. And they basically decided in like the early 80s, the Chinese Communist Party, they decided uh, that they were not going to endorse traditional Chinese medicine. They said, we're reversing the compromise that Mao made. The Chinese Communist Party is now against traditional Chinese medicine. And they are. At this point, the Chinese Communist Party says that they do not believe in traditional Chinese medicine. They believe in science. They believe in modern medicine. um, And they don't believe in non-scientific practices. If it's not been proven to work scientifically, the Chinese Communist Party doesn't believe it. So this guy, and I'm going to get his name wrong. I'm butchering his name, Li Hongzi or something like that. This guy was actually like a a prominent... um, Okay. Um, all right. Um, wrote it down. This guy was like a prominent, um, prominent, like you know, friend of the Chinese Communist Party, and he was a practitioner of traditional medicine. And uh, he immediately started, you know, protesting against the Chinese government, and you know, leading people who quit the Chinese Communist Party or were you know, we're against the Chinese Communist Party's decision, you know, to officially oppose traditional Chinese medicine, leading them, leading them to, you know, to protest against the Chinese government. But then the internet was invented. Okay. The internet was invented. And with the internet, which just happened to be invented in the United States, you know, comes out of Silicon Valley, which was built by the CIA. You can Google the origins of Silicon Valley. Free market did not create Silicon Valley. The NSA and the CIA uh, they created Silicon Valley, and immediately, as the internet started going, uh, they immediately, the internet just, I'm sure it had nothing to do with the CIA. No, nothing to do with American intelligence. Nothing to do, I mean, come on, right? The CIA, American intelligence, the internet, which was a new invention in the 90s, started promoting the crap out of Li Hongzi and the Falun Gong. And they started having protests against the Chinese government, and they started kidnapping children and brainwashing them, and children wouldn't speak to their parents for years. They would disappear and not speak to their parents unless they were trying to recruit them. And that's a big deal in China. They're really into filial piety and the traditional family. And and it was it was a religious cult. And people were you know, and they did they they engaged in violence and and you know there were there was assassinations and bombings. And it was a, it was not a good group. Um, now, what are the beliefs of the Falun Gong? Falun Gong believe that you have this magical wheel in your stomach. That is your soul. Um, and if you do the right exercises, uh, when you die, your magical wheel will go to heaven. But if you don't do the right exercises, then you won't go to heaven because you don't have a magical wheel in your stomach. Um, they also believe um, they also believe that uh, interracial marriage uh, results in you having no soul. If you are Chinese and you marry a black person, the baby you're going to have has no soul. If you are a Chinese and you marry a white person, the baby you have will have no soul. They are against interracial marriage, and they believe that if you are the product of interracial marriage, that you have no soul. Uh, Li Hongzi has said that women voting, because women in China vote. Women in China vote in the elections. 
He believes that is a huge crime against Buddhism. It's a sign that China is entering a, a Dharma ending period. It's the most awful thing, awful thing that women in China can vote. Um, and some in the Falun Gong believe in public executions for gay people. They want to publicly execute gay people to scare people out of being gay. Now, some other people in the Falun Gong, they say that, no, 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 we shouldn't just, we shouldn't kill the gay people. We should just publicly castrate them. Some of them want to castrate them and some of them want to kill them, but they want public, public, you know, punishment of gay people. It is a, an awful group, um, Falun Gong. And, you know, again, I, you know, some people make them sound like they believe in democracy, blah, blah, blah. They don't want democracy. They're feudalists. They are feudalists. Um, they are anti-communist extremists, feudalists. They don't want women voting. They want to, you know, punish, brutally punish, torture, castrate, or execute gay people. They brainwash kids away from their family. They're an awful organization. Um, that said, uh, they seem to have set up shop. The leader, Lee Hong Zee, lives in Queens, and he's got like this million-dollar house in Queens, and he lives in luxury. Um, and uh, they have two groups, and that's the interesting thing. If you're a white person and you join, you're never going to hear about gay people, and you're never going to hear about women voting being bad. And you're, you know, you're, you're not going to be separated from your family. And it's just going to be this nice mystical ex it's kind of like going to yoga and they're going to tell you how evil the Chinese government is. And they're going to lead you in doing yoga and meditating. And that's all it'll be right for white people. They have this watered down politically correct version of, of the fallen gone practices. But for Chinese people, uh, they're against interracial marriage. They are, you know, they are against, uh, they are against, you know, they want to kill gay people and they, they're, they're an awful right wing group. Um, and that's the fallen gong. Um, and they were Obama supporters. They tended to recruit hippies. Uh, you know, that, that was who their, their target was. It was these kind of hippie liberal people who want to be Eastern man and they want to do yoga. That's who they recruited. But now, ever since Trump got in, Trump was so anti-China. Now they love Trump and now they're all Republicans. And so their newspaper is all just about communism is bad. Communism never worked anywhere. Um, you know, that's what they're all about, right? So you know, they're one of these religious cults. It's kind of like the Moonies. I think they're probably modeled on the Moonies. You know, the Moonies, it's this religious cult from Asia. They own the Washington Times, which is their newspaper. So this is a religious cult from Asia, anti-communist. They run the Epoch Times. That's their newspaper. Um, you know, and they hired Trevor Loudon, uh, who is like really dumb and thinks things about me that are ridiculous. He says I'm part of groups I'm not in and is like completely ridiculous. And yeah, that's the fallen gone. Basically, they're you know, they're an anti-communist religious cult from China, um, and they they are part of the Trump movement now. All right, next. Um, Davos and stakeholder capitalism. Well, stakeholder, stakeholder, right? I mean, that's, you know, the idea that, you know, stock ownership, right? That's been around for a long time. That's part of, you know, the corporation is a modern, um, you know, it's part of modern capitalism and imperialism. It's the rise of the corporation, stock ownership. Um, so, you know, but yeah, I mean, Davos and, you know, the world economic forum and, you know, this is the ultra rich. They re they, they meet and they talk about ruling over us. Um, Malthusianism, LaRouche and the place in the communist movement. Well, I've talked many times on here. I am, I have read many of much of the writings of Lyndon LaRouche. A lot of it I agree with a lot of it. I don't agree with. Um, but he, he was somebody, Lyndon LaRouche was a Trotskyist, uh, at one point, uh, during the 1960s, he was a Trotskyist. Um, and he started teaching classes, uh, at the free university. Um, and he taught classes at the free university on Marxism. Uh, and he, he realized that the synthetic left, the hippie stuff was, was counter-revolutionary. 
Um, and so he built his own group. It was called the National Caucus of Labor Committees. Um, and, you know, they, of course, immediately, just like with me, they were canceled. Everyone called them fascists and Nazis and anti-Semites, which they weren't and they aren't. Um, but eventually in the 80s, they stopped in the 70s, they stopped being Marxists. Uh, now they advocate what they call um, the American system. They like the economist Frederick Friedrich List of Germany. Uh, their views are not my views, okay? Um, and there's some stuff they say where they, they're very good at exposing the synthetic left and their ties to the CIA, calling out Malthusian economics, which Marx called out. Marx was against Malthusianism. Um, but there are some things about them I don't agree with, but they have been unfairly targeted. Lyndon LaRouche was very unfairly put in prison, um, and, and he should be post, you know, he's dead, so it'd be posthumously, but they should, they should exonerate him, right? They should, they should pardon him. Um, you know, and I mean, they're good people at this point, they are protesting, uh, they, they are opposed to war. They're supporting Russia. They're supporting China. Uh, they point out, you know, the great projects of the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, they believe in infrastructure and technological progress. So, you know, that I think they do good work on that. Um, and you know, they, they, they do a lot of good work exposing, you know, us imperialism and supporting the Belt and Road and China and Russia. So I respect them on that ground. Uh, they don't believe in global warming. They they think global warming is a hoax. I don't think global warming is a hoax. I, I, I think global warming is reality. Uh, they've said things like Karl Marx was a British agent because he works at the British Museum. I don't agree with that. I'm a Marxist, right? And they have, they were Trotskyites and then they became, you know, what, what they are now. But I have the first volume of Lyndon LaRouche's complete works uh, that just came out after his death. I can't wait till volume two comes out. And every time I read his stuff, I learned something. Uh, you know, I think he he incorporated psychoanalysis uh, into a lot of his writings. Um, I think that's kind of clever. Um, you know, and I, I mean, I respect them. And you know, they're anti-imperialists. Um, you know, and you know, you don't have to agree with everybody, right? You don't have to agree with everybody, right? I don't agree with them on a number of points I just listed. You know, the group. You know, in the 1980s, they they were very very not good towards the LGBT community. And I, I'm pro-LGBT all the way. I think that a lot of the way they spoke about the LGBT community in the 1980s was reprehensible. I don't agree with it. Um, but they've changed. You know, I know members of the group that are now gay that say, you know, we made a mistake. You were wrong on the LGBT question. So I respect them. They're good people. Uh, I interviewed Daniel. Daniel, who's one of their people, I've interviewed him on this channel many times. I'm going to interview him again on Monday night. He's a good guy. He's with them. Um, you know, and we need to be able to work with people of different perspectives, different perspectives, folks. All right. Um, okay, Austin, I'm going to answer this tech entrepreneur thing. All right. I'm going to get, I'm going to answer that. All right. Um, so we'll get to that. Don't worry. It's on the list. It's on the list. All right. Um, so there you go. Edible tendencies in the lab. Well, edible tendencies, that's a Freudian term. That's a psychoanalytic Freudian term, right? And it comes from the story of Oedipus, Oedipus Rex. It's a play from ancient Greece. There's some, some guy named Oedipus, um, and he murdered his father and married his mother. And Sigmund Freud argued that, you know, when young boys are in love with their mothers and hate their dads and want to rebel against their dads, and the dad knows this, and so the dad, you know, resents the young boy um, and, you know, and wants to prevent him from, from doing that. And so the young boy has a fear of being castrated by his father and the young boy has attraction to his mother. And it's this whole Freudian thing. But basically when people talk about Oedipal complex, you know, or, or Oedipal stuff, they're talking about this like drive for rebellion, right? And that's a big part of, of the synthetic left, right? It's this obsession with just, you know, rage and rebellion, you know, rebelling against authority. And it's like this inner drive we all have to kill our fathers, right? And every teenager has felt this way, 
right? Every teenager hates their parent, especially their parent of the same gender. I don't know if you ever noticed that, but it's very common that when you're a teenager, you know, you may, you may not like both of your parents, but if the parent of the same gender, if you have a mother and a father, right? I mean, nowadays we have single parents, we have LGBT families, but if you come from the traditional family with a mom and a dad, if you're a boy, when you're a teenager, you hate your dad. If you're a girl, when you're a teenager, you hate your mom, right? That's, that's, you know, and that's, they talk about the edible, that's the edible drive that, you know, you feel, you know, you, you feel like your dad is constantly trying to put you in your place and, and, you know, you know, be the man of the house and not let you be the man of the house. If you're a woman, you feel like your mom, you always want to quote unquote, stick it to mom. That's what they say, what teenage girls want to do. And that, um, that, you know, that's the edible thing. This is a Freudian trope, right? It's Sigmund Freud. So some people argue, uh, some people argue that the synthetic left, in a lot of ways, they appeal to people's desire for rebellion, origins of Ukrainian anti-communist lobby in the U.S. They argue, they appeal to these emotions that, that people have that are edible, right? The edible feelings that, you know, and that a lot of, and that's true. There is a lot of, um, you know, there is a lot of edipal drive you know, in a lot of ways, a lot of, you know, thank you, Austin, for the super chat. A lot of leftism is appealing to that psychology in people. I've talked about the releasing of impulses. In my Kamala Harris book, I talked about this a lot. In the French Revolution, giving permission to people to release their impulses and release their rage. I talk about this in the Kamala Harris book. And yeah, I mean, this is part of what goes on. So there you go. Um, you know, and, and that we need to get beyond that. We need to be the city building tendency. We need to be appealing to people's desire for a better life. Um, you know, um, so there you go. All right. Next question. Anna Louise Strong. Should you read your, her autobiography, I Change Worlds, or the biography right in her soul? Read her autobiography, I Change Worlds. I find that to be an amazing, deeply powerful emotional book. I Change Worlds by the great Marxist journalist Anna Louise Strong. Amazing stuff. It's a great book. The biography of her, right in her soul, I don't particularly care for very much. It's not very easy to read. I didn't find it to be as well written. Anna Louise Strong is an amazing writer. She writes with such passion and emotion. Uh, it's beautiful. I mean, I love Anna Louise Strong. She was an American writer. Um, and, uh, you know, she was, you know, her father was a minister. Uh, she got involved in protesting against child labor. And she did displays showing the horrors of child labor in the, the early 1900s um, and fighting for the rights of children against child labor. Um, and uh, because of that, she was elected to the school board of Seattle, the city of Seattle. And she, was a, she joined the Socialist Party because she was fighting against child labor. Um, and when World War I broke out, she was against World War I. So she was kicked off the Seattle school board for opposing World War I. And then she led the great general strike of Seattle in 1919, an amazing general strike. Um, and then after that, after the Russian Revolution, she went to Russia and she lived in Russia. And she, she wrote the English language newspaper in Moscow called the Moscow News. Um, and she was the editor of their English language newspaper in Russia. And she eventually went to China and she interviewed Mao Zedong and she wrote books about China and she wrote books about the Vietnam War. And Anna Louise Strong was amazing, amazing writer. She wrote uh, The Day the Serfs Stood Up in Tibet about the truth about the Tibetan Civil War and the Dalai Lama. Um, she wrote her last book was about the Vietnam War. It was called Cash and Violence. Um, uh, cash and violence in, 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 in Laos. I mean, she is amazing. Anna Louise Strong is very amazing. Uh, and just the poetry and the desire to build a better world. And I mean, and she even wrote a book about the United States and during the Great Depression, the struggles of the workers and the unemployment councils. It's called 
my native land. It's just beautiful. Anna Louise Strong is an amazing person. I love Anna Louise Strong in so many ways. Why is Vosh trashing black nationalism? Because black nationalism is anti-imperialist. Black nationalism believes that black people are an oppressed nation in the United States and that their interest is against U.S. imperialism. Fights for the, you know, a lot of black nationalists want a, a national territory for black people. They want the, the Republic of New Africa or the Black Belt Republic or the Black Belt. Uh, a lot of black nationalists like Gaddafi. Uh, they like uh, China. They like Cuba. The Nation of Islam. They, they quote me in their newspaper all the time. They're great folks. I went to Iran with the Nation of Islam. They're great folks. Um, I look up to the Nation of Islam uh, in a lot of ways. I look up, I've always admired black nationalism. Somebody said I don't support black nationalism. I do. I believe that as a white revolutionary, it is our responsibility to support black nationalism, right? Um, and to not, you know, take positions on, you know, telling the black community, should they integrate or separate? You know, if the black community wants to integrate, I support integration. If the black community wants to separate, I support separation. Colonized people have the right to determine the question of integration or separation for themselves, right? And that is really, really important, um, you know, that, that, that um, you know, and that, yeah, of course, black Vosh hates it because he's, you know, and that's, it's so weird. The same person that was saying, I don't support black nationalism was also saying that I, I attacking me for supporting Farrakhan. Farrakhan's a black nationalist. In fact, Farrakhan is the top black nationalist in the United States. All these people bash me for, for supporting Minister Farrakhan. Well, he is the top black nationalist in America. How could I not support Minister Farrakhan? I don't agree with him on a lot of points, but I've seen the work that the Nation of Islam does in the black community. Uh, they do amazing work. Um, you know, who was that woman who was disappointed that the Soviet Union was not a sex paradise? Uh, that would be uh, the founder of Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger. Uh, but there you go. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, I support black nationalism. Absolutely. You know, people say that I don't that, that I don't support indigenous people. No, I've made clear I support indigenous people if they want to have their own territory separate from the United States. I support that. If they want reparations to be paid to them by the American government, I support that, right? And these people that want to jump on me over the land back thing, I have said over and over and over again, I support reparations and I support indigenous people having their own territory. I don't support a, a, a George Soros, uh, you know, Silicon Valley funded NGO called Land Back. But if, if Land Back means that the indigenous people get their own territory, which and they want it, right? If they actually want it and it supports that, then I support that. It means reparations to help them, you know, economically develop that territory. I support that. But I, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have come out against Land Back because the, the thing is, Land Back is a trip, right? There are about six different definitions of Land Back, right? And some of them are things I support and some of them aren't. And the definition of Land Back changes six times in every fucking argument. And it's so annoying. Right? Sometimes land back means you support this NGO that wants to privatize government land. Sometimes supporting land back means you want indigenous people to determine their own destiny. Sometimes supporting land back means that you think indigenous people have the right to their own territory and reparations, which I support. Did you hear me? I support that. Okay? If, an, if any oppressed group within U.S. borders wants its own territory, I support that. Okay? So any, anyone who tells you I don't support oppressed people and their right to their own territory, decolonization, is lying to you. Okay, but sometimes land back means that all white people must leave North America. I don't support that. Right. Sometimes land back means that no white you know, that, that that we're not allowed to march for jobs and education because we're, we're demanding jobs on stolen land. I've heard that before. Right. Euro settlers just want more goods 
You know, during Occupy Wall Street, people said that we couldn't march at Occupy Wall Street. You just want jobs in modern capitalism. That land is already occupied. You know, there's this this whole like you can't argue for anything. Look, if land back is clearly defined as just supporting the sovereignty of indigenous people, supporting reparations to them for the crimes, then I support it. But if land back is deporting all white people, I don't support that. If land back means we're not allowed to protest for economic demands because we have no right to be here because we're living on stolen land, how dare we as white people ever do anything? This is not your land. How dare you? Then I don't support that. The definition of land back changes six times in every argument. But the thing is, there's a reason they do this trick. Yes, and free Leonard Peltier. I've marched for Leonard Peltier many times, free Julian Assange, free Alex Saab, and free Mumia. The reason that they're doing this thing with land back right now the reason they're doing it, okay, is because they don't, the reason there's no clear definition of it is you're not allowed to want one. You just have to support whatever the wokes say, you know, oh, look, a group of people support this. If you don't support it, you're racist. Well, tell me what it is. I mean, do the majority of indigenous people support it? Right? I mean, look, look, a lot of these wokes, they project their politics onto indigenous people. Yes, there are some indigenous people that do want tribal sovereignty. They want to break away from the United States. They want their own territory fine. They want reparations, fine. And great. I support them. There's some indigenous people that are evangelical Christians. Did you know that? There are a lot of indigenous people who are evangelical Christians. There are a lot of, evan- there are a lot of indigenous people who vote Republican. Did you know that? There are, there are Native Americans who vote Republican. There are Native Americans who serve in the U.S. military. A, a lot of Native Americans fight in the U.S. armed forces. So, you know, some NGO gets set up and they say, oh, we're for land back. They won't tell us what it is. And then, and, then this, and then the definition of it changes about six times in every argument. But if I don't immediately throw up my arms and say I support it, uh, then I'm racist. And it's like, no, this is, I'm sick of being hoodwinked. I'm sick of this hoodwink, right? I support indigenous sovereignty. I support reparations for indigenous people. I support their right to their own territory. I've said that over and over and over again, okay? But I don't support this blank check of just, oh, we have to support everything just because somebody on the internet, a bunch of white people on the internet have announced land back. I don't support deporting all white people from the United States. I don't support the idea that we can't protest for healthcare or jobs because we have no right to anything because we're on stolen land. Shut up, white Euro settler. So again, there are about six different definitions of it. and we're not allowed to actually talk about politics. It's this, oh, so you, you better, you know, there's a mob of wokes that are angry. And if you don't immediately agree with the mob of wokes, canceled, how dare you? Oh, you're a racist white man. Shut up. I'm sick of this crap. I'm tired of politics being like this. I want to think, okay? I want to talk about facts. I want to talk about facts. I want to talk about policy. I want to talk about economics. I want to talk about actually things that can get done. I'm tired. Take your woke emotions. I get it. You're mad. You're mad. Okay, you're mad at the world, right? Great. I'm mad about stuff. You're mad about stuff. That's not politics. Being mad is not politics. Your angry emotions, your angry emotions, your white guilt, that is not politics, okay? And I'm tired of it. I'm really tired of this woke crap. It has nothing to do with socialism. I mean, did, you know, it, it, did Karl Marx, when he wrote the Communist Manifesto, just wrote, I'm really mad about stuff. You know, no, he didn't write that. He wrote a fucking document that understood history and Marxism and and historical progress and dialectics. I mean, come on. I'm so tired of this. I'm so tired of this woke crap. It's just explosive emotions. 
everyone's emotions running crazy. Ah, and if you don't immediately agree with whatever it is they want, which they can't even tell you what it is they want, but you got to agree with it. And if you don't agree with it, you're, oh, you must be a neo-Nazi. You must be in the Ku Klux Klan. These people are nuts. Okay. And I'm tired of it. They don't speak for me. I'm a socialist. I was a socialist before it was trendy. I was a socialist when I was 13 in, in Ohio in a Republican town. I protested the Iraq war. Okay. I, I stood against the Iraq war. I was talking about police brutality before any of these fucking woke pigs were talking about it. All right. Before any of these people who saw it on Twitter and thought it was trendy, I was with police brutality victims in Cleveland. I was going to court with victims of police brutality when nobody talked about it. When everyone at my college told me that police brutality was made up, that's just something black people make up to get money from the government. There's no police brutality. I was marching against police brutality. I was standing in solidarity against police brutality. I was talking about it long before it was trending. Okay. And I'm so tired of these wokes. These wokes are disgusting, right? They, they, I swear, they only believe in this because it's trendy, because it's popular, because they saw it on CNN. They don't know anything about history. They don't know anything about economics. They're not interested in this stuff. All they care about is fitting in. They want to be part of the crowd and they want to let their emotions run wild. I actually believe in this stuff. You know that, folks? I actually believe in Marxism. I actually believe in socialism. I've read books about it. I've visited socialist countries, okay? I've gotten arrested in demonstrations for this. I've risked my life trying to bring aid to the people in Yemen. And these people, these stupid 14-year-old teenagers who get on there and, you're racist because you wave an American flag. You're not decolonism. I'm more revolutionary than you, even though I sit on my computer and do nothing. Shut the fuck up, kid. Just shut the fuck up. I don't want to hear it. Seriously, I'm in this for real. All right, if we're going to actually win this thing, we got to get to average Americans. And we're not going to do it by making average Americans hate us by making average Americans think we're their enemies, by, by telling average Americans, our goal is to tear up your homeland with a civil war. Uh, you should be poorer, you evil Euro settler. That's not going to work, okay? If we actually want to get out of the nightmare of U.S. imperialism and capitalism and the low-wage police state and the prison industrial complex, if we actually want to do something about this, if we actually want things to change, we got to grow up, just grow up, right? Control your emotions, read a book, learn to how to actually talk to people, get people to understand that your goal is to make life better. That's what we need. That is what we need. And I'm so tired of this stupid wokeness. It has nothing to do with Marxism. It has nothing to do with socialism, you know, and, and, and I'm, I'm just letting it all out right now because I'm sick of it. I'm really sick of it. I have said over and over and over before any of these people had ever been born, I was in favor of the right of indigenous people to sovereignty. I had a demonstration. You know, the FBI came to my college campus. You can look this up. There's a picture on my Facebook. The FBI came to my college campus when I was in college, uh, well over like, you know, 15 years ago. Or not, I mean, 10, 11 years ago, 12, 13 years ago, I was in college. The FBI came to my college campus. And on this very conservative campus, I had a protest against the FBI recruitment workshop for Leonard Peltier. And there were four people there. And we protested the FBI recruitment workshop for Leonard Peltier, right? And, you know, nowadays that might be trendy. Nowadays you might get 50 people there and it'd be so woke. I can tell you that was not trendy. They sent out a whole email, a security email all over the campus with my face on it, saying that I was a disruptor and that, that I may be disrupting this FBI recruitment. We stood there with signs. I didn't do anything. Right. So these people that, that want to act like I'm just I'm evil, I'm 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 a fascist, I'm a Klansman just because I want to wave the American flag and get American workers to understand I'm not their fucking enemy. These people who, who think I'm a I'm a neo-Nazi uh, because I don't immediately jump on the latest trendy thing you saw on Twitter. You have no idea what you're talking about. I've got I've got skin in this game. OK, you know, I mean, I have taken risks. 
I mean, I have gone around the world. I have gotten arrested at protests. I have, I have, you know, I've had a lot of friends I've lost over the years. I have made sacrifices for this. I really have. I believe in this shit. Okay. I believe in this shit. And, and, you know, these 14 year olds who think get on there and they think they're so special, you know, you know, screw these people, screw these people. I'm, I'm really tired of it. I'm really, really tired of it. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, and now, now it's like, oh, he doesn't support land back. Well, what is land back? Maybe I do. Maybe I do. Maybe I do support land back. Tell me what it is. Oh, you're racist for asking what it is. Oh, okay. There. Thanks. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm racist for not supporting what a bunch of 14 year old white kids on the internet have announced that we have to support. I mean, this is ridiculous, right? Have you ever been to a Native American reservation? Do you think every Native American is a woke, you know, is a woke 14 year old? You know how many Native Americans there are who are Republican? who serve in the U.S. military, who are evangelical Christians. Do you think you speak for Native American people because you watch some videos on YouTube? Give me a break. I am so tired of these people. I am so tired of them. I mean, and the country is sick of them too. You know, people always, they say, I'm a crypto Trump supporter. I'm a fascist. These people are the best friend Donald Trump ever had because the whole country is sick of them. The whole country is sick of these disgusting wokes. They are sick and tired of them. They are sick and tired of them. And right now, the only alternative is Trumpism. The only alternative is Trumpism. If we can't build a left, a socialism that is not woke and toxic, if we can't build a socialism that's about making the country better by getting rid of war and racism, if we can't do that, if we can't build a socialism that's about trying to make a better country, it's about trying to break us out of imperialism and build a new society. I mean, if we can't build a socialism that people would actually want to join, then all we're going to get is Trumpism. We're going to get more right-wing authoritarianism and Bonapartism. And, you know, um, you know, and that's what we're going to get, right? If we can't get a socialism that might actually get to the masses, if we can't get out of the movement into the masses, we are going to get fascism. That is what we're going to get because people are tired of the status quo and people are sick and disgusted by the wokes. I'll tell you that much. So if you see these, these wokes, um, these wokes out there, these people, these people are the best friends that actual neo-Nazis and fascists ever had. These people who can't tell the difference between Jimmy Dore and David Duke are the best friends, the best friends actual white supremacists ever had, right? The people who are on there that think that, that think that an- people who've spent their lives as anti-racists are Ku Klux Klansmen because they disagree about Russia or something. These people are the best friends that actual neo-Nazis ever had. Right. The neo-Nazis should be paying these people. Um, there you go. Sorry to go off there, folks. I just ugh, it, I'm so tired of this. I am so, so tired of these people. I am so tired of them. They, 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 they make me embarrassed. You know, when I tell average working people I'm a communist, they think I'm one of these people. and I'm not. They think I want to destroy their community. They think I hate them. Right. I was in West Virginia right after Donald Trump got elected. And I, and I was talking to a steel worker a union steel worker. I was talking to a union steel worker. And you know what he said to me? You know, uh, Quentin Tarantino was in, the, in his movies. You know what he said to me? This union steel worker. Um, he said to me, he said to me, he said he voted for Donald Trump. This is what he told me. He said he voted for Trump. He said, because the Democratic Party stopped believing in the working man. And now they're a bunch of socialists. That's what he said. and I. I, I was like, wait a second, socialists believe in the working man, but that's not, that's not how these people see it. No, no, no. You know, I mean, I, socialists believe in the working man, but this, this steel worker in West Virginia who voted for Trump, 
In his mind, they don't. And that's true. If you meet the average, you know, woke who thinks they're a socialist, they don't believe in the working man. They hate the working man. They think the working man is an evil racist and sexist who needs to be, who needs to atone for his white privilege and how, who check your privilege, working man. Uh, oh, you're not woke. You've never read Judith Butler. Oh, you probably want more stuff in your house. Well, you're destroying the environment. You're destroying the environment by having more stuff and you're living on stolen land. You're a racist Euro settler. You should be poorer. That's what the, these wokes are disgusting. They're anti-working class. They, and, and average working people hate them. They hate them. Average working people hate Antifa. Average working people hate the woke crowd. They hate them. And righteously so, because they these they, these people think average Americans are their enemy. And if we want to be the average the enemy of average Americans at a time when average Americans are more anti-war than ever before, average Americans are more critical of the the establishment and the media than ever before. Um, I mean, if that's what if that's what the synthetic left wants, they're basically these people are enabling the right wing to come to power. I just have to say that. I just I have to say it because it makes me mad. Would you be open to support from a tech entrepreneur? Sure, but I wouldn't change my principles. You know, I wouldn't change. If a tech entrepreneur wanted to support the work that I was doing, liked my message, I would appreciate that support, right? We need all the help we can get. You know, we're trying to build a, a new constructive city building left. And if some tech, tech entrepreneur wanted to support me, I would be okay with that. I would be okay with that. It wouldn't change my beliefs. I wouldn't change my beliefs to pander to him though. He's saying, okay, well, we'll give you money to, to build your organization, but you have to stop believing in anti-imperialism. You have to support the next war with Russia. You have to support the next war with China. You would offer me money and say, okay, uh, you know, we'll give you money, but you have to, you have to start canceling average Americans and making them your enemies. I wouldn't do it, right? I'm part of the city building tendency. If there's somebody who wants to come along and support what we have to say, their support is welcome and appreciated, but our principles will not change. I've been doing this. A lot of people say, oh, Caleb, you work for a Russian company. Bullshit. Bullshit. I do work for a Russian company. That's true. But I was supporting anti-imperialism when I was 13, when I was 14, I was supporting anti-imperialism. I was protesting the Iraq war. I was, I was defending people in my college. You can ask anyone who went to college with me. They hated me because I was always sticking up for Saddam Hussein, for Iran, for Venezuela, for Robert Mugabe. I have been an anti-imperialist my whole life. I am not a shill, folks. I have been doing this my whole life. And I, 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 a lot of people know that. I have been an anti-imperialist my whole life. So there you go. For people in the chat, they're saying they're in a mutual area. What would be the best way to organize among fellow viewers here? All right. Organize among fellow viewers. All right. Uh, do you trust Bernie Sanders? No, no, I don't. I mean, you know, his economic program is good, um, but he's taken a number of pro-imperialist stands. He ends up telling people to vote for the Democrats. So no, you know, Bernie Sanders, again, it's important. A lot of the people attracted to his message are good, but you know, um, there you go. All right. Um, why is Tucker Car Carlson occasionally able to say the truth on an imperialist network? Because he's the opposition, right? The right winger now the opposition, right? You know, during the Bush years, occasionally, you know, CBS uh, or NBC would interview, you know, Michael Moore or somebody who was saying something anti-war and stuff. And you know, I mean, you know, I mean, there there is opposition. They have to give the the, the voice to the establishment. Uh, at some point, and thank you for the super chat, they have to give voice to the establishment at some point, or the anti-establishment position. They have to give it voice at some point, right? And right now, it's the right wing that is kind of on the defensive and against the status quo. So that's where you're going to find it. And you'll notice that most of what Fox does is blatantly pro-imperialist. But yes, every so often, now that Fox are the opposition, now that the mainstream of imperialism is this woke, trying to give a woke makeover, um, 
you know, uh, because of that, uh, because of that, you will start to see occasionally some some genuine anti-imperialism on Fox. Not not for the most part, but there you go. Korean War in a nutshell. Uh, okay, so after the Second World War, um, you know, Korea was liberated, um, and the northern half of Korea was liberated by Soviet troops, and the lower half of Korea was liberated, or was you know was you know it was still under Japanese occupation, and then um, a, a government was formed in the south. You know, after Japan surrendered, where Signory, uh, Signory was a military guy, was in charge. Basically, it was called the Republic of Korea. The idea was there were supposed to be elections in all of the Korean Peninsula to elect a new government. That was the idea. To elect a new government, um, you know, the idea was that uh, that they would have an election for the whole peninsula. But then Sigmund Rhee declared himself to be the military dictator of South Korea. Uh, so then in South Korea at Cheju Island, there was an uprising among the Korean people demanding the right to vote. They wanted democracy. It was an uprising for democracy, demanding the right to vote for their leaders. Um, and they were slaughtered. And there was a massacre. Um, AOC's statement on Ukraine. All right. There was a massacre at Jeju Island, a horrendous massacre where Koreans who wanted the right to vote for the Communist Party and have free elections were slaughtered. Um, and so because of that, the North said, all right, our, our country folk, other Koreans are being killed. Um, you know, we need to go rescue them. And so the North, you know, intervened to protect the people of the South who were being slaughtered for protesting for democracy. You have to remember, there's no North Korea and South Korea. This is one country. All right. The only reason it was divided was because the Soviet troops only got to about half of the Korean peninsula before the war ended. Um, you know, and, you know, they didn't think they, you know, the U.S. media, when they talk about the Korean War, they'll always say, well, the North invaded the South. Well, no, it's the same country. Okay. So yes, the the socialist government formed in the North, yes, militarily intervened in the South, but they were, they, it was the same country, right? It'd be like China intervened in China or, or, you know, or Russia intervened in Russia. All right. So it was like, yeah, there were two governments that were formed and they were negotiating to have elections for the entire peninsula. And then all of a sudden the South declared a military dictatorship and started killing all the progressive and anti-imperialist and, and pro-democracy people in the South. And so in response to that, yes, North Korea militarily intervened. The United States said, oh, you know, and the USA got involved and there was the Korean War. And the USA bombed every single building in the northern half of the Korean Peninsula that was above one story tall. And they bombed the dikes and they flooded civilian areas and they, they just committed horrendous war crimes. The war crimes the US imperialists committed in North Korea were horrendous. And then China got involved. China got involved. And China... Uh, sent its military, uh, and they supported the Korean people. Um, and China, China got involved. And the USA, uh, Douglas MacArthur, who was the general, threatened to drop five atomic bombs on China if they got involved. But he did that without asking President Truman's permission. And so he was fired because he was threatening to nuke people without the permission of the president. Um, and the Chinese Red Army drove, uh, drove the U.S. troops back down to down to the, the 38th parallel, the, the border that had been established. And at that point, an armistice was declared. And then after that, there was supposed to be a peace treaty signed, but there was never a peace treaty signed. And so technically, the USA and North Korea are still at war with each other. Um, there was never a peace treaty signed, but an armistice was declared. And that's the Korean War. Um, and uh, there you go. So yeah, that, that's kind of the Korean War in a nutshell.
Uh, Four million Korean people were killed during the Korean War. The USA committed horrendous war crimes. Uh, But the North Koreans, they fought amazingly heroically. Uh, They are the only force, they are the only country to have ever have taken captive a U.S. Army general. Now, there have been other, there have been, you know, there have been U.S. uh, Marine Corps generals who've been captured and stuff. But the only, the only, the only U.S. Army general to ever been captured was captured by the North Koreans. Um, and many U.S. soldiers that were taken as prisoners of war during the Korean War became communists in the prisoner of war camps and confessed to war crimes. Uh, and so that's where the whole obsession with brainwashing came from, because the, the communist Chinese, uh, you know, they would go to prisoner of war camps in China and the, the Maoists would win them over to communism. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty wild. But anyway, that's the Korean War in a nutshell. Uh, a pro-socialist tech entrepreneur created a platform. Would this be possible? What stances would he take? Yeah, I think it would be possible. I mean, of course, they would try to suppress it, just like they suppress all alternatives to Facebook and Twitter and social media. But yeah, I think it could be done. I mean, I'd love to, you know, if I had the resources and the time, I'd love to create a platform, uh, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, a tech entrepreneur could create a platform and that would be great. And I'd be for that. You know, eventually, Facebook and Twitter and all of them are going to lose. They are going to lose their monopoly. It's only a matter of time before it happens. Uh, so there you go. There you go. All right. Um, next question. Uh, the Ukrainian anti-communist lobby. The Ukrainian, you know, the Ukrainian far right has been in the United States for a long time. Uh, you know, in Cleveland, uh, there, there were a lot of like very far right, um, anti-communist John Birch society kind of people that were Ukrainians. Um, you know, the, the Nazis actually, you know, they, they played up a lot of the narrative used by the Ukrainian far right, this idea that, that the Ukrainian famine that happened where there was, there was, you know, crop failures and, and the, you know, they had the collectivization, the idea that that was Stalin just hated Ukrainians and was trying to commit genocide against Ukrainians. Well, actually there were food shortages in Russia as well. People starved in Russia. It was all over the countryside of the Soviet Union. Um, you know, and, and that, you know, yes, there was a famine and yes, a lot of Ukrainians died. That is true. Um, but you know, the idea that this was because the Soviet union, they just hated Ukraine and they wanted to prevent Ukraine from having a nation. That is the narrative that the Nazis, uh, really played up during world war two as they tried to build an anti, an anti-communist fighting force with Stepan Bandera and others. Um, and yeah, I mean, there, you know, there, there is, there is a, a layer of anti-communist far-right extremists in the United States. There's some Hungarian ones. There is some Ukrainian ones. There's people that fled the Soviet Union, people that hate communism. You know, you know, they, they exist, right? Every time, you know, the country would have a socialist, it's just like the Miami Cubans. It's just like the, you know, the, you know, every time a country has a socialist revolution, uh, the United States would take in all the people who fled from it. Um, you know, so there you go. And that's the Ukrainian anti-communist lobby in the United States. Tarantino movies. Well, Tarantino's dialogue is very witty. Um, you know, uh, Pulp Fiction. I really enjoyed it. Uh, the way the movie went, I didn't know where it was going to go. It was like the plot kept changing and then it was tying up all the loose ends. That was pretty good. I haven't seen very many Tarantino movies. So I haven't seen Kill Bill. I haven't seen a lot of the big Tarantino movies, but I have seen Pulp Fiction, which was, I think, his first big movie. And I liked it. I thought it was very witty. Next question. Uh, how do you organize your fellow v- viewers? Join the Center for Political Innovation, CPI. Go to the website, cpiusa.org, cpiusa.org, sign up. And once you sign up, you should be getting in your inbox invitations to our weekly Zoom calls. We will try to connect you with a local organizer. There's a reading group in Chicago right now. 
There's a reading group in Seattle and the Pacific Northwest. There's a California organizing committee that's in San Francisco and it's in LA. Uh, we have folks in Texas. There's a great group called San Angelo Solidarity that's doing great stuff. We're about to have a big event in Austin. Um, you know, there is um, there is a DC area organizing committee. Tristan's there in DC, and Max the Sax and and other folks are Elizabeth. And they're doing great stuff. They're about to have a great demonstration for Alex Saab. Um, you know, we've got the New York City organizing committee. We just had a meeting here in New York City with folks that want to build the Center for Political Innovation. Yeah, if you want to be part of the community centered around this YouTube channel, go to cpiusa.org and sign up and get involved. Um, you know, we'd love to have you. We would love to have you. All righty, all righty. Um, okay, uh, next question. Uh, next question. All right, AOC's statement on Ukraine. She doesn't know what she's talking about, right? She doesn't know what she's talking about. The sovereignty of Ukraine. The, you know, Russia is not going to invade Ukraine. Russia is not threatening the sovereignty of Ukraine. You know, you know, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, has said that Joe Biden is overplaying the danger of war. But AOC just says what she's told to say. And it's kind of sad. You know, listen, folks, I, I'll just make this point before we end. You know, I gave AOC a chance. And, you know, I did. And I think we, we need there's this Internet culture where we just want to immediately denounce everyone as a fake, denounce everyone a phony. I didn't do that. I've met AOC. Uh, I think three times I have met her. Um, at least one time we actually spoke and there was another time where eh, we, we kind of met, it was like at a town hall. We, we talked, I mean, she was, eh, I mean, I don't know, you know, I've met AOC a couple times, uh, you know, and she strikes me as a well-intentioned person. I think she's just wrong. I don't think she knows any better. Um, and I gave her a chance. And when a lot of people would see her do this or make this statement about Tibet or that, I didn't jump on it at first, because I, I, I want to give people a chance. We need to have people in the government who are sympathetic to us. Uh, we need to have people in the government we can work with. Um, you know, but AOC is no good. I mean, now after January 6th, she wants the media to be censored, right? She wants the media to be censored. She wants the government to censor the media to make sure no one says any, promotes any conspiracy theories. Uh, she is supporting, you know, she's beating the drums of war against Russia, playing up this idea that Russia is trying to attack Ukraine. She's betrayed Venezuela. Uh, she, you know, forced the vote instead of even, you know, instead of, you know, getting behind forced the vote, she immediately had her people go out and condemn Jimmy Dore as a fascist. AOC is not our friend. It's disappointing, though. It's extremely disappointing because we shouldn't want her to be our enemy. We should want to make friends. We, we have the wrong approach. And I think on the internet, you know, like obviously Young Turks is not our friend, but there's some people that, that are on the fence. Kyle Kalinske, right? He's done some bad stuff, but he's also done some good stuff, right? And that again, you know, there's some people like Vosh, there's some people like Young Turks, they're no good. And there's some people that are amazing, like Jimmy Dore, you know, he's amazing. Jackson Hinkle is amazing. Convo Couch is amazing. Gray Zone, Max Blumenthal, they're amazing. I'm amazing, if I do say so myself. John Brown volunteers are amazing. Flame of Liberation is amazing. But there's also this big area of people that are in between. Okay? Kyle Kalinske is a great example. Sometimes he does good stuff. Sometimes he doesn't. You know? Um, I'm trying to think of some other examples. But we need to figure out how we can not burn a bridge with, with everybody. Right? Because... Some of these people that occasionally do good stuff, you know, we need to not burn bridges with them. We need to find a way that we can, you know, we need, there should be 
AO, if AOC was in Congress and she was good, that would be great. We need there to be people in Congress that are anti-imperialist and sympathetic. Look, Tulsi Gabbard, great example. Tulsi Gabbard has said some really amazing stuff about, about Syria and really amazing stuff about the danger of a new world war with Russia. But you know, she's also said some stuff about Islam that is awful. I mean, she said some stuff about Islam that I don't agree with. But you know what? I, I respect Tulsi Gabbard because you know, she's for healthcare for all. She's for a jobs guarantee. She's anti-war. And you know what? I can, I can look at the bad stuff she said and say, okay, she's wrong on that. But again, I'm not ready to just throw her under the bus. We need to figure out how to have alliances with people. We need to figure out what people would, would be worth strategic support for. Right? We can't have the attitude that everyone must be our enemy. Right? I mean, the, the wokes are vicious. They want to cancel everybody. We need to not be like them. They're children. They're overgrown children. They're, they've got their Oedipal complex. They're having their tantrum. They're getting their emotions out. They can't even tell you what they're for. They're just mad at people and they, you know, they're canceling people. Ah, these crazy people. You know, we don't want to be that. We are scientific socialists. Okay. We are city builders. We are the city building tendency. We need to not be like those people. We need to be better than them. We need to be strategic. We need to be able to enter strategic alliances. I gave AOC a chance. I really tried with AOC. There's a photo you can find of, of me and AOC, right? Me and AOC and a guy from Flame of Liberation blog are in, in the same photo. It's really hilarious. It's really funny. I don't, I, I don't regret that picture. You know, I gave her her chance. I hoped she could be better. And who knows? Maybe, I mean, at this point, not likely, but it's possible. Never say never. There's a chance that, you know, if something were to happen, if she, you know, right alliances and circumstances, she could get better. Okay. But we need to figure out how we can make alliances with people, how to not just cancel everybody who makes a mistake. We need to be smarter. We need to be scientific socialists. We need to be city builders. Okay. Um, and so, you know, I gave AOC your chance, but you know, like Kyle Kalinsky, okay. He's done, he's said some things I vehemently disagree with, but he's also said some pretty good stuff. Um, and he's, he's not, you know, as bad as some of the others. Wouldn't it be better if we could find a way to not have, you know, not cancel everybody. That's what we ought to do. That's my opinion. Um, you know, look at Jason, Jason and right? I'm somebody who's been friendly to him and I've heard him say stuff I disagree with, but I was just like, okay, Jason, you can think that. And I forgave him, you know, and he lost it over the billionaires thing and he lost it over the, you know, he lost it over you know, environmentalism and he lost it over third worldism. But I said, okay, you know, we can agree about Iran. We can agree about Venezuela. You know, I tried to maintain an alliance. Well, finally, he just had it. Oh, he couldn't, he hated me and he's made crazy videos and stuff. Well, you know, what has Jason, what is Jason ever going to become? Is he ever going to build a mass movement? No, he doesn't even think it's possible. Is Jason ever going to be anything but a guy, you know, and that's what I am right now. I'm a guy screaming into my webcam, but I'm, I aspire to be more than that. I have conferences around the country. I have workshops. I work for a major international TV network. I write books. I, you know, I'm building an organization, right? And, and that's what we should be aspiring to be. This shouldn't just be our, our release, our ability to get on here and like scream, F the world, it's unfair, and then go back to live our life. We should be building communities of solidarity. Capitalism has left so many people without, right? So many people our age. I don't have a decent job, uh, don't feel like they have a future, feel abandoned, feel hopeless. We need to give them a community to be part of. And we need to give them a purpose in life. 
We need to get them to understand that they can take up history's challenge, that they can live a life that matters. They can fight for socialism. They can, they can, they can be Gus Hall. They can be Harriet Tubman. They can be Huey Newton. They can be William Z. Foster. They can be, they can be Anna Louise Strong, that, that there is a hero and a revolutionary with great potential inside of them. We need to be empowering people. We need to build communities of solidarity that, that enable people to become heroic and make great achievements for the class struggle and for the working class to drive humanity to a higher plane. That's what we need to do. We need to help people find a community of solidarity that will pull, pull them forward, that will put them forward and enable them to do things they could never imagine they were capable of doing. We need to enable people to become heroic, to overcome their over-socialization, their fears, their pessimism, and, and become great ultra-revolutionaries. That's what we need to do. We need to build an actual community of solidarity that enables people to raise their heads up and become city builders. That's what we need to do. It's not enough to just have this online community where I get on here and scream and yell about, about stuff. We need to build the city building tendency. The Center for Political Innovation, Students and Youth for a New America, we got to build it. We've got to build it. Um, that's what we need to do. Um, and uh, so that's what we're trying to do. And if we're going to do that, we're going to need allies. And there's going to be people that we disagree with who might be useful and might, you know, find common ground with us, might share common goals. Um, you know, we might overlap, right? Wouldn't it be great if there were some Christian pastors, uh, you know, who agreed, you know, with us and, uh, you know, we could have a relationship with, wouldn't it be great if there were some, uh, you know, there were some elected officials, city council members, or, uh, members of Congress who agreed with us. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't it be great if there were, um, you know, if there were, there were like labor unions that worked with the CPI and, you know, worked on some of CPI's initiatives and we had campaigns around jobs and education for it. We need allies. If we are going to actually get stuff done, if this is not just going to be internet entertainment, we need to win friends and influence people. We need to find common ground with people. We need to approach things in a much more mature manner. We can't just be wokes screaming and yelling. Uh, we can't just be getting our rage out. We need to build communities of solidarity. Look, the John Brown volunteers are amazing. Shout out to the John Brown volunteers. Shout out to San Angelo Solidarity. Shout out to you know the Chicago reading groups and, and the West Coast Organizing Committee, the California Organizing Committee, Students and Youth for a New America. You guys are doing something that's very hard. It is very hard to be in a relationship of any kind, right? Being married is hard. Every day is not great when you're married. Ask anyone who's been married. They said, you know, there's been many times they felt like getting divorced. Ask anyone who's been married. There's been times that they've been upset, and, you know, but, but staying married is hard work. And staying in an organization, in a revolutionary organization that is fighting for socialism is not easy. And there's going to be people you disagree with. And there's going to be situations where they don't go the way you want. And you're going to be frustrated with people. And learning, learning to listen to people and learning to be patient with people learning to forgive people, learning to operate in a disciplined manner, in a comradely manner, learning to, learning to, you know, to, to make people feel better about themselves, learning how to get people to do good work and how to encourage people and how to give criticism in a way that doesn't crush the person's spirit, but helps them to do better. All of these are skills that you're not going to learn on the internet. You're not going to learn it on the internet. You're only going to learn it by doing real work, by being in an organization. 
And if you want to know how to be happy, which is what a lot of people are trying to figure out, how can I be happy? You're going to be happy. You need to get involved with other people. You need to join a community of solidarity. You need to learn how to stand arm in arm with other people and build solidarity. That's what you need to learn how to do, right? And with the Center for Political Innovation, Students and Youth for a New America, that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. And we are doing the best to make it happen. Um, so if you are part of this online community and you want to get involved, uh, sign up, cpiusa.org. Get involved. Uh, we will try our best to, to plug you in. You can contact me directly. You can send me an email, calebmoffin at gmail.com, all one word. Yes, right? If we don't build an organization, we don't build an organization, we're not doing anything. And that's how, by the way, you can tell that Bosch is fake. And that's how you can tell that Destiny is fake and that ContraPoints is fake because they're not doing that. They have hundreds of thousands, millions of people have watched ContraPoints videos. If she were to say, join this organization, and if she were building an actual socialist group, it would be massive. But she doesn't do that because that's not her job, right? Her job is to make woke propaganda. Um, you know, the impassioned rant of the once the woke is lovely, passionate Caleb is best Caleb. Thanks, Captain Waffles. But yeah, yeah, these people, they just, you know, they make woke propaganda. Imagine if Chapo Trap House was at. Chapo Trap House was actually organizing people, right? They could do amazing stuff, right? But they don't because they're not really trying to change the world. Vladimir Lenin. And his book, right? I'll pull up the quote for you because it's so damn important. I'm just going to read you what he said. I have quoted this over and over and over again, but I, I am just going to read it to you because it must be said, right? It must be said because people don't get this. People really don't get this, right? This is what Vladimir Lenin wrote. He wrote, neither we nor anyone else can calculate precisely what portion of the proletariat is following and will follow the social chauvinists and opportunists. This will be revealed only by the struggle. You hear that? Only by the struggle. And it will definitely be decided only by the socialist revolution. But we know for certain that the defenders of the fatherland in the imperialist war represent only a minority. And it is therefore our duty, if we wish to remain socialists, to go down lower and deeper to the real masses. And this is the meaning and the whole purport of our struggle against opportunism. By exposing the fact that the opportunists and the social chauvinists are in reality betraying and selling the interests of the masses, that they are defending the temporary privileges of a minority of workers, that they are a vehicle for bourgeois ideas and influences, and that they are really allies and agents of the bourgeoisie, we teach the masses to appreciate their true political interests and to fight for socialism and for the revolution through all the long and painful vicissitudes of imperialist wars and imperialist armistices. By calling out Vosch, by calling out AOC, by calling out ContraPoints, by calling out the fakes and the wokes, and by going lower and deeper to the real masses, by going into working class communities and neighborhoods, by talking about patriotic socialism and saying that we love America and we're going to make your life better, by exposing the warmongering liars who speak in the name of socialism and going past them lower and deeper to the real masses, we are doing our duty. This is our duty to get out of the movement and to the masses. This is the whole meaning of our struggle against opportunism. If we wish to remain socialists, we must go lower and deeper to the real masses. This is what Lenin is telling us to do. 
the Bolsheviks never, they never had a better newspaper than the, than the Mensheviks. They never had more college professors than the Mensheviks. They organized the real masses. They had Stalin, a man from Georgia. He wasn't even from Russia. He was from Georgia, you know, uh, a Southerner from Georgia, right? Uh, the ballad of Joe Stalin says, Joe Stalin was a Southerner from Georgia. He was born where oranges grow thick and fast in fields of waving corn. And Joe, he was a farmer. He made the land all green. And he built up the workers' state the world has ever seen. You know, go go read the lyrics to the ballad of Joe Stalin. It, it, actually, that's great. I'm going to pull that up. The ballad of Joe Stalin. I'm not going to sing it to you because I'm, I'm not a singer. The ballad of Joe Stalin. I'm going to read this to you. Right. Um, you want to hear it performed, go to the end of the Saxton lectures and watch it at the end of the Saxton lectures. Uh, the end of the Saxton lectures, Paul performs the ballad of Joe Stalin, uh, the ballad of Joe Stalin, um, you know, by, uh, by Ewan McCool, right? This is, this is about who Stalin was, right? Joe Stalin was a mighty man. A mighty man was he, he led the Soviet people on the road to victory all through the revolution. He fought at Lenin's side. They made a combination till the day that Lenin died. He said, come all you people, we'll work with brain and hand. But then one day, the Nazis came into the Soviet land. They plundered to the Volga, to Stalingrad. And then Joe Stalin said, come on, me boys, and kick them out again. Joe Stalin was a Southerner. In Georgia, he was born. Where oranges grow thick and fast and fields of waving corn. And Joe, he was a farmer. His fingers, they were green. And he planted the biggest crop the world had ever seen. One day he looked upon his map and shook his and frowned and shook his head. There's too much brown and not enough green. Those are the words he said. We'll have to change the weather, boys, he said. And then he smiled. So let's begin by planting trees along 3,000 miles. Joe Stalin rolled his sleeves up and he said, come on, let's start. The Volga River and the Don, they are too far apart. I think we'd better join them. So come on, help me, pal. We'll build a mighty waterway we call the Volga-Don Canal. One day, he went up into the north and saw the rivers three, all emptying their waters into the polar sea. Now, that's not right, Joe Stalin said. These rivers, they are ours. So we'll turn them around and make them give electric power. There was a range of mountains that was standing in the way. So Stalin put his hands up and smoothed them all away. For Joe, he was determined to make the land all green. And that's the biggest project that the world has ever seen. Joe Stalin was a mighty man. A mighty man was he. He harnessed nature to the plow. Uh, I'm sorry, starting again. Joe Stalin was a mighty man. He made a mighty plan. He harnessed nature to the plow to do the work of man. He hammered out the future, the forgeman he has been, and he made the workers' state the best the world has ever seen. That's Stalin, right? Joe Stalin, right? Joe Stalin was, he was not from the rich. He was not from the aristocracy. He was from Georgia. He wasn't even from Russia. He was from a nation that was colonized. That was a, was an oppressed nationality in the Russian empire. Uh, you know, he was from a poor village, uh, called Gori. He was from a, a village and 
He learned to read and write only because his mother was a a fanatically religious person who sent him to seminary school. He learned to read and write, and he knew how to work with people. He was a man's man. Uh, He liked to drink and smoke cigars, and he could be friends with anybody. He could talk to anybody. He was charming. And Stalin knew how to organize people. Stalin was a man of the people. He understood the peasantry. He understood the factory workers. Um, you know, and Stalin, you know, there, there was actually, there was a rock and roll band in the 1960s um, that was called, um, that was called Country Joe and the Fish Band. Country Joe and the Fish Man and the Fish Band. And the reason it was called that was because it was named after Stalin and Mao. Mao was called the uh, was called the fish because Mao said the re- the masses are the water and the revolutionaries are the fish. Stalin was called Country Joe because he was from the country. He was from a rural area, right? And Stalin understood the people. And the reason that Stalin was able to mobilize the Soviet people to industrialize, to build the country up, to electrify the country, to defeat the Nazi invaders, to make their country a superpower was because he loved the Soviet people. He loved them. He loved all the Soviet people. He loved the, the Russians. He loved the Georgians. He loved the Ukrainians. He loved the Moldovans. I mean, he loved the Soviet people. He loved the Siberians. There's a story that Stalin, you know, he was sent into exile in Siberia. And they, you know, and they sent, you know, all these Bolshevik leaders into exile. You know, and they, they would send them to Siberia. And they're living in exile and all these Bolshevik leaders are miserable. They're all rich kids, students, intellectuals. They're like, oh my God, we're in the middle of the countryside. What are we going to do? Stalin went to the local village and he made friends with all these Siberian villagers. And he got to be so popular with the Siberian villagers. They elected him president of the hunting club, right? Stalin was president of the hunting club. They liked him so much. Stalin knew how to work with people. He loved the people. He loved the people. And that's why. He was so effective. Stalin was the editor of Pravda. He was the editor of Pravda, which was the um, which was the the daily newspaper. You know, the the Lenin and the Bolsheviks they had Iskra, right? They had Iskra, which was the um, which was the newspaper of you know the theoretical journal that Lenin wrote for and stuff. But Stalin was the editor of the daily newspaper called Pravda, which was a newspaper about actual conditions in the factories, about what life was like for average working people. Workers would write in and say, my boss is exploiting us. He's got unsafe conditions. Another worker would write in, my conditions are just as bad. And it was like a voice, gave voice to average people about what their life was like. Stalin had a deep love for the Soviet people. He understood them. You know, he understood them with with deep passion. He understood the Soviet people. And because of that, he was able to mobilize them to build up their country. And if we in the United States, if we socialists, if we Marxists in the United States, if we want to actually win and actually dismantle U.S. imperialism and actually build a healthy society and actually build socialism in America, we need to love the American people in the same way. Doesn't mean we have to support their backward views. Doesn't mean we have to support racism. It doesn't mean we have to support chauvinism or colonialism or, or, or reactionary ideas. No, but we need to love the American people. We need to love all the American people, you know, from California to New York to Idaho to Georgia to Alabama. We need to love all the American people, black, white, Arab, Asian, Latino, you know, Mormons, Catholics, atheists, Protestants, Jews, 
Muslims, you know, Hindus, Sikhs, Native Americans. We need to love the American people. We need to have a deep spiritual connection with the American people. If we want to lead the American people, we want to lead the American people. If we aspire to lead the American people in dismantling imperialism and building a socialist society, we must love them and we must know them. And if you're serious about politics, if you're LARPing, you want to LARP and you want to be silly on the internet, have fun. But if you really believe in this stuff and you really want to change the world, and if you're a socialist, you're genuinely a socialist, you must learn to love the American people and love them so much and have a, so much of a deep spiritual connection with the American people that you're able, you're able to mobilize them to fight for their future, to show them that their future is breaking out of U.S. imperialism, tearing down the global system of monopoly capitalism, standing in solidarity with the people of Africa, Asia, and Latin America, ripping America out of their imperialist system and building it up in solidarity as part of the Belt and Road, as part of the Eurasian Economic Union, building a new America on new foundations, repudiating the past of colonialism and slavery, and building a new America for working families. And if you're going to do that, if you're going to do that, you have to have deep love for the American people. And if you don't want to develop that love, you don't want to know the American people so well that you can win them to socialism. If you don't want to know and love the American people so well that you can get them to see their own true interests and why imperialism and capitalism is their enemy and why Russia and China and Venezuela and Cuba are their friend. If you don't want to do that, you are not worthy of the task. It's a hard task. It's hard to love people. It's hard to love people that have, have gone along with ugly wars. It is hard to love people who have locked their brothers in jail or sold their people you know, opioid medications that have gotten them addicted. It is hard to love people uh, who are filled up with so many delusions and think that capitalism is a great system or that think, that think that communism never worked anywhere. It is hard to love people who are selfish and individualistic and have let so many of their, their people starve and go hungry, right? It is hard, it is hard to love people uh, who have let so many of their country folk become homeless. It is hard to love people who look at look at Skid Row in Los Angeles and see so many of their brothers and sisters being homeless on the streets and don't rise up and demand the government do something about it. It's hard. It is hard, but it's our job. It is our job to love the American people. We must love the American people and we must love all of the American people. Black, white, Asian, Arab, Latino, young, old, urban, rural. We must love the American people and we must figure out how to get them to understand where their true interests lie. That is your job. That is your job. That is your job. If you are a serious Marxist, you must learn to love the American people so that you can show them that for their life to truly get better, imperialism must be dismantled, capitalism must be overthrown, and socialism must be established. You must learn to love the American people. As hard as it is, as angry as you might get with them, as frustrated with them, you've got to learn to love them. It's kind of like Sam Marcy. I'm critical of Sam Marcy, but Sam Marcy said, you've got to learn to love the people and you've got to learn to patiently explain 
That was what Sam Marcy said. You've got to learn to patiently explain to the American people where their true interest lies. Folks, if we wish to remain socialists, we must go lower and deeper to the real masses. Dare to struggle, dare to win. If you never dare to struggle, I'll quote the great David Cedillo, the founder of San Angelo Solidarity. If you don't dare to struggle, you're never going to win. If you don't dare to struggle, you're never going to win. And daring to struggle means learning to love the American people. Dare to struggle, dare to win. A new upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression. But the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. While the danger of a new world war still exists, and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. While the danger of a new world war still exists, and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. We need a government of action that will fight for working families. We need a government of action that will fight for working families. We need a government of action that will fight for working families out of the movement to the masses, out of the movement to the masses, out of the movement to the masses, dare to struggle, dare to win, dare to struggle, dare to win. We need a government of action that will fight for working families. Good night, everyone. Good night.